What is up, wrestling fans, and welcome to the next installment of 2001, A Wrestling Odyssey. And we're doing this one for the month of April that doesn't include WrestleMania X7. And joining me on this journey back in time, as always, is Robert DeFelice. How are you doing on this fine month of April in 2001, Callum? Uh, it's a lot more boring than the previous months, but there's only one company left now. We're now, we're now in the era of one company. Do you feel well, positive about that? With still... the benefit of hindsight, no. No, yeah. I don't. Yes. Uh, I mean, we're still kind of in that era still. I mean, you've got the hopes for people like New Japan and Ring of Honor and AEW, but we're still very much in a monogamous relationship with wrestling. Uh, Sometimes an abusive res- relationship. You probably would have. WWE and leading to a monogamous, abusive relationship, that can't seem like something Vince McMahon would want. Nah, of course not. But um, if you didn't catch our uh, previous edition, that was a review of just WrestleMania X7 on its own. And so we're not covering that in our April edition, even though it took place on April 1st. So we decided to give it its own show, and Tony joined us for that one. So if you want to check it out, just go back in the uh, video archives, and then you'll be able to find it there. But this month, we're just going to cover all the rest of the news that took place in April 2001 and then do, at the end, a review of Backlash. So start just from the beginning. Just a few, like, carryover notes from uh, WrestleMania X7 in terms of, like, its impacts and what it managed to accomplish. Um, you know how we spoke uh, when during the actual recording of if there was meant to be a 20th person in that battle royal? Yes. Now, I did some digging into it and listened to some other podcasts that had kindly done some other research into this area. And apparently, Gilberg was backstage at WrestleMania X7. Huh. But the idea was that they, after the purchase of WCW was made official, they thought, well, we're not going to sign Goldberg if we piss him off and put Gilberg into this battle royal. And, and Dwayne... And yeah, and Dwayne Gill has actually given interviews about this, saying that he was backstage, ready to go out at WrestleMania, and then on the day of the show, they told him that you're not actually going to wrestle. Now, I think that would have been a great way to kind of tease Goldberg. He could have thrown to the WCW people in the skybox, and unfortunately, they should have done their research and just known, hey, he's not coming anyway. He's got one of these, you know, Turner or Time Warner contracts, he's not coming. And then we could have gotten a 20th man, but, you know, what are they going to do? Well, WWE was still in the process of trying to figure out some loopholes regarding those contracts in order to see if they could get people on board. And they still would have held out some hope that people like Goldberg would potentially take a pay cut and come into work straight away. But uh, obviously the idea was that if Goldberg was in the was in the ring Goldberg took offense to that because apparently he did take a lot of offense to it when he was in WCW and Goldberg was being portrayed in the WWF uh it probably wouldn't have gone down too well is it fair to say he took himself too seriously uh I think I, I, I kind of think you have to insert when you're at that sort of level I think you don't need to take yourself seriously if you're just a mid-card guy but if you're at the main event you should take your yourself and your character a bit more seriously I mean, do you, I think Stone Cold, right. do you think Stone Cold took his character seriously? Uh, yeah, I think they were perhaps a little too seriously when he got 
to the heavy drinking. Ah, uh, yeah, well, we'll talk a bit more about uh, the stuff that was going on this month. Uh, so just some stats for so, um, it made it the, um, it was the second highest attended show in North American history behind WrestleMania three, obviously, as we said in the previous one. And the, um, three million, uh, five, like $530,905 it made was the largest game for a wrestling show in history outside of Japan. Wow. Does that record still hold today? I don't believe so because they've made, um, uh, the, the attendance for this show has been surpassed in other ones, and also the prices of tickets have gone up since then as well. So I'd be surprised if it if it hasn't been beaten. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I'm, I'd be hugely surprised if it wasn't beaten by even like last year's WrestleMania. Because what was yeah. the attendance? What was the attendance for that one? The fake attendance about ninety something thousand. Um, for for last year's in New Orleans was. Something like seventy five thousand. Oh yeah, was was it the um the Dallas the thirty two one, one is the one that's like a hundred six thousand yeah seven hundred seventy three or something like that and it's uh, I think the actual numbers are far less but hey it's a work guys and also the uh the the event itself also reaped in over a million dollars of merchandise on its own wow one day million dollars worth of merchandise. Pretty amazing. You know, and as you'll see if you go back in the archives and listen, that mania does hold up. And when you look at it in the context of the Monday Night War, it is a special moment. So it's well-deserved, I say. So now just we've put a little bow over WrestleMania. We can now move on to the rest of the news. And even though WCW is dead and buried at this point, it's still the biggest news topic going on because... Now we're in the process of trying to build up towards WWF WCW, which essentially was just going to be, as we discussed, I think, in the March edition, that they wanted to do a Saturday night show. It would essentially be 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Saturday nights on TNN. Because that was the only that was the only slot that they could really wrangle out of TNN before trying to uh, essentially a proof of concept. Now, like, I think I brought this up when we spoke about it before. Impact would go on to do a a time frame like that, but with a brand like WCW, they really didn't try to shop it around to NBC, uh, CBS, any other well, we, networks we sp- or companies. Well, we spoke about this in the sense that um, because of the deal that uh, Raw had signed when they went over to TNN, uh, they didn't want Vince McMahon's brain or creative energy being put into any other television station except their own. And you think Vince is too, I don't think selfish, but he's too into control to say, all right, I have this brand, but this will be under the creative umbrella of Shane McMahon, let's say. I, I just think just let that... Shane run with it. Well, first of all, I don't know whether Vince would have allowed that sort of thing. That was the plan going into this, was that Shane would essentially take the reins of the show. But I think it was just too much of a sense of this is a, now a WWF-owned product, so that means Vince Man's hands are all over it, and we don't want another network getting rich off of his wrestling show. Now oh, that's annoying. 
Oh yeah, it is annoying because they they. I mean, that's the reason why they didn't try and buy it earlier in 2000 because that was the thing that Viacom was holding them back. And instead of um, because they would have purchased it and continued to run on uh, TNT, but they were essentially barred from it. That's so bad. Oh well, just the way that things were at the time, and. Now Raw is going to be well, Raw on SmackDown and going to be competing on a compete not so much competing because one's on cable and one's on like broadcast television. So it wasn't, that wasn't the case for you, right? They were both just on Sky. No, uh, WCW was on a uh, just national TV that you could watch for free. Right, the Raw and SmackDown like SmackDown wasn't more accessible for you, was it? No, I think they were both on Sky. So, so yeah, they would have both been on separate networks. Or they would have been on the same network, but they would have been, like, both paid to watch, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, um, yeah, so, essentially, the idea is, so, like we said, 11 uh, p.m. till 1 a.m. on Saturdays. Uh, Initially, they were thinking of doing this, essentially, they would record it on Saturday evenings, around about, I don't know, just the, the normal time that fans would be around, so 7pm till 9pm, and then put it on tape delay for a few hours, and then it would broadcast a few hours later. You know, if they were going to... That would have been an interesting slot for the ECW brand. You know, because you could have said, oh, we're back on CNN and we're going even later, so now the network's going to let us get extreme. But with a brand like WCW, it just that just doesn't sync up. No, but there was, I mean, that was the initial idea of doing like the Saturday nights. Uh, then they changed their mind towards the end. Essentially, they'd sent out to any press available that there would be a touring schedule. They'd sent them a touring schedule, take TV taping dates, and then within a couple of days, they completely scratched those ideas. Who'd have thought Vince Man changing his mind very quickly? Uh, uh, that's a shame for the people who were on contract. You know, like, there's a lot of people who maybe Sean O'Hare could have done something had he had an actual WCW brand to go to. We're seeing benefits like that in today's day and age in 2019 where WWE has all these brands. So Alexander Wolf can just go home to the UK and be on NXT UK. It's it's not the same level of reach though. That's true. And you don't and you don't, and you don't get the same, I uh, assume, monetary benefits. But uh, it's still you know money and being under that umbrella. True. Uh, but it, even though they changed their mind, it was it was still planning to go ahead. Um, by the end of this month, the tentative date to launch the new WCW was June sixteenth. And but instead, it would be taped on Wednesdays. Like the night after SmackDown, it'd be it'd be broadcast in the same sort of area that SmackDown was being taped in, but it would be well. This is the thing they wanted to do with WCW, as we stated, it would be under the leadership of Shane McMahon, and you'd have a completely different production team, completely different roster, completely different ring crew, all of that stuff. Wow, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be any crossover. Uh, the only thing that would well that would be initially crossover was the fact that it was Jim Ross and Kevin Dunn's job to hire all of these people. I think the only benefit from this, as opposed to what we ended up getting with the Raw-Smackdown brand split, 
is it would have been easier to convey the idea that these are different entities. You know, like Raw and SmackDown sometimes just feels like it's the red WWE versus the blue WWE, whereas you could have done more with an actual brand name. Yeah, and that's what exactly what they were planning on doing, or at least we know how Vince Man is in terms of his level of control and what he will say, because when they launched ECW, it wasn't ECW. That's but, true. But it was the idea of, like, this was going to be just a completely different show. The only time that the different creative teams or the production teams would get together is once a week to kind of make sure that uh, on an episode of Raw, if there was a steel cage match, there wouldn't be a steel cage match on WCW just to make sure that there was no crossing wires or anything along those lines. You mean script continuity? Essentially. I mean, it's not really continuity as much as just uh, stating that if you're doing one of these matches, then the others, we don't want you to do this match as well because it might take shine off of our match or it make it seem like we're both doing the same thing and we don't want to make it look like that. Right, but they've even... It's just amazing that that was a concern in 2001, and here we are in 2019, and they've given up that idea completely. Well, they used to care. And to be honest, yeah. if you if you check a lot of the TV tapings and the TV reviews from this month, it's very quick to see that, that that knowledge of caring to not caring was like a flick of the switch, almost. Because they've started to, I'm not to say rest on their laurels, but they know that they're the only competition now. And so they're, they're taking the foot off the gas a little bit. Do you think that was depressing for Vince McMahon? Mm, I think he enjoyed, he was still enjoying and reveling in the idea of defeating WCW to really care at this point. And he had bigger concerns. He wanted to get WCW launched. He still had the XFL to deal with. Uh, I think the television product just suffered due to that. Yeah. Um, but more in lines of like what they were planning for WCW. So, so like I said, Jim Ross and Kevin Dunn would be responsible for arranging the roster and production crew. Um, the big issue, obviously, was trying to get some main event talent. And as we spoke about previously, all the WCW's top stars were signed to Turner contracts. And that meant that they were exclusive to these contracts until... They either decided to renege on them, or they were bought out of them, or they were fired from them. And essentially, what Turner reaffirmed during this month is that if any one of those wrestlers under those contracts competed for any promotion, be it the WWF or Independence or uh, in Japan or Mexico or anything like that, they would be fired from those contracts and they'd lose out on all of the money. Wow. Uh, and, and that... Like, let's be real. I know we're going to get a lot into the invasion and how all that went down. But if you're Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Hulk Hogan, or even Goldberg, who hadn't been to WWE, but, you know, was still making some nice money, why would you, you know, why would you sacrifice all that money to go on the road? Well, exactly. And WWF had a very strict pay structure at the time. And they wouldn't bend it for people even though as many people have reaffirmed in the years going afterwards if you sign goldberg to a huge contract you make all that money back in a couple of shows 
That's true. Because look at how big the Invasion show was. The Invasion show is one of the highest grossing and most bought pay-per-views in WWF history. And it had the only top name WCW talent that was on it were Booker T and DDP. And even then, it's not really the top line. line. I mean, it has the WCW champion, but it's still... Like, it's not Goldberg, it's not Ric Flair, it's not Sting. Yeah, they... They left a lot of money on the table. Oh, absolutely. And we'll get into that and we'll rip them apart from it as the year progresses. But <laughs> essentially, that's the pro- that's the sticking point, is the idea that as essentially they will be asking WCW talent to renege on a lot of money and actually come to work, as opposed to make a huge amount of money. I mean, Goldberg's contract wasn't expiring until like late 2002, early 2003. You look at people like... Flair was was uh, ending in like mid two thousand two. He ended up like cancelling it like late two thousand and one to get into WWF, and we'll cover that when he does come into a position of power. But people like Sting, Sting obviously also had the issue with the fact that he didn't want to work for Vince McMahon at this point in time. Well, and I know that's later on down the year, but I can't wait till we get to the moment that Sting credits with making him not want to work for Vince McMahon because if you look at it you're just like yeah I understand oh absolutely do you think that the only reason Booker T was able to climb himself to a credible position in WWE is because he was the first person to be so loyal and jump on because even Sting had two matches in WWE and he lost both of them you know He he had four matches and he beat the big show by DQ, and then he won. And then won a tag match. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, but, that's fair, I guess. I mean, I, I think the assumption that Booker T had a, had a better ride in WWF is actually false. I think Booker T had his potential completely cut under him almost immediately, because he essentially be, he entered WCW champion, and by the end of the invasion, he was just like Stone Cold's lackey. Yeah, the... The, uh, was that 2001, the shopping incident? I've, I think it's either late 2001 or early 2002. But uh, but I've, I I mean, hopefully it's 2001 because we can watch it and then that's like an interesting match at the very least. But yeah, I, I think Booker T and DDP, definitely DDP, got a very, very rough ride for being so willing and, and willing to give up that money and come sign for WWF and they got absolutely nothing for it. Especially in DDP's case, because he eventually got to the the next level and did get to experience some of the benefits, but that was probably not until 2003, I'd say. Yeah. And by then, DDP was already long gone from WWF, so. And we're going to see, well, maybe not, I don't know if we'll decide to do that, but if we look into it 2003, the business, match-wise, becomes almost nothing but dream matches. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, but it's just a case of, I mean, it's it's almost like a year or two too late. I mean, it's yeah. still there's still dream matches like when you have Goldberg come in and you have Hulk Hogan is back under contract and all that, and Kevin Nash is back. But it just feels like it was a little bit too late, and they'd lost a bit of steam. And also they were put badly after that point, but we'll see whether we do end up covering that. Um, essentially with WCW staff. Uh, 
120 of the 140 employees that were working there at the time were let go. This is like non-roster members. This is actual like like crew and stuff like that. And is apparently, the, oh, is there yeah. any key player that WCW or WF got from WCW that I, we don't know about behind the scenes? Essentially, they were told WWE told people that were working behind the scenes at WCW that if they wanted a job, they could apply, and they would get an answer within thirty to sixty days, or That's whether they awful. would actually get signed to them. That's uh, sad. Yeah, I mean, it's the idea of like WWF had a lot of people already so and if they were going to launch this new one then they probably would bring a few of those people on board but it was mainly like i mean you're talking about it's not so much production but it's like human resources uh the people that are actually running the company side of things like the finances and all that stuff so they've got people for that i guess that's true so they don't really need as many people which is sad because it's just like a, a ton of people losing their jobs uh but that's what happens when companies go under uh, and apparently it was a very cold send-off as well. Uh, not even a... Uh, was... I'm, I'm trying to remember his um, name. Uh, uh, Brad Siegel, that's it, who was the president at the time, uh, apparently didn't even show up to uh, say goodbye to everyone or to let them know they'd been... that the company had been sold and they'd been fired. Ugh. Which, which Man, really we're, like... we're starting early and I already feel just awful inside. It's it's two thousand one, baby. This is this is what we get. I mean, is it better or worse than nowadays? Uh, well, I think nowadays when it comes to things like losing your job, there's a little more sensitivity from people. I mean, but this just sounds awful. I mean, you probably hate this. Apparently, the um, person in HR that was like being responsible of like talking to all the staff pronounced uh, Tony Schiavone's name as Tony Skiavone. <laughs> is that like uh? When Jericho used to do interviews in WCW, he would literally say a ski of own. I wonder if that's like a knock on this person. Well, I think it's more of a case of this person had no idea who Tony Schiavone was, other than the fact of just like, like that person probably never ever watched an episode of WCW, which but was just working there. Yeah, which is what you're going to get when you have a corporate, you know, structure in something like wrestling, because most people think they're above wrestling. Mm-hmm. So you had the idea of like uh, WCW's roster, which Jim Ross was working hard basically throughout the entire month, and also a lot of the just the early the early to mid part of 2001 assembly. The idea was that it was going to be a WCW roster with signed talent and a few and a, to- a few top names they could get hold of it. Like the names that they were really interested in in terms of main event stars were Booker T, DDP, Scott Steiner. Uh, Goldberg, if they could get him, but they thought Goldberg was pretty much a lost cause. But there's a few people along those lines. And then you'd stack it up with the rest of the WCW roster they'd already signed. Uh, you have, uh, they wanted to bring in ECW names, like they, they started finally getting into conversations with Rob Van Dam. Yeah, he's one of the first names I remember really showing up where it felt like, oh, this is special, you know? I mean, they they were still the reason why Rob Van Dam wasn't approached very immediately was because he'd left a bad taste in the mouth of the previous ECW invasion of Raw, where he refused to do a, a job to somebody, and essentially Vince yeah. was still angry with him and Sabu for that. And you'll you'll be interested to see that Sabu's name is not anywhere near uh, WWE's fault. You don't say. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. 
But um, yeah. I, they were they were bringing in people like Tommy Dreamer. They wanted him to come in fairly soon. Uh, they'd already have already have people like Taz and the Dudleys if they wanted to move them over. Uh, they just signed Jerry Lynn as well to Jerry. Just incredible. So they had people on there that could class as ECW talent that they'd move over to there. Then they also wanted to get people promoted from OVW and their other free de- territories that they thought were ready to get into there. So to just bleed in some young talent. And then they'd move over some like guys that were essentially directionless in a WWF. So the names that were being bandied around were the big show, Billy Gunn, people like that. Man, it's interesting that you say the big show because here's a guy who really did have a tumultuous time with the company. Like there's times where he is seen as like major main event. And then there's times where he really didn't matter. When 2001, coming off the back of 2000, he'd already been sent back to APW because they thought he was completely out of shape. And Jim Ross wasn't a huge... I don't want to say Jim Ross wasn't a fan of him. Jim Ross obviously saw a lot of potential in the big show, but he thought that he was lazy. Uh, and and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't shed weight. And so I don't think Jim Ross would have been sad to see him move over to WCW instead. Agree or disagree on that lazy remark? I, I think there's an argument at that point in time that he was comfortable. I don't say lazy. I think he was comfortable. That's fair. And I think that if he if he wanted i mean he showed it later dates when he was more motivated that he would lose weight and he would look in pretty good shape so he could get down to like 400 420 pounds if he wanted to but at that point in time he was definitely over the 500 pounds yeah just uh, very interesting uh, jim ross uh, in, in a uh, ross report from this point in time listed the 24 wrestlers that the company had signed essentially it was still in the process of like having their 90 day contracts and then they would let them expire and then they'd give them new deals, which would be a lot less than the money they were making in WCW. Because I mean, they, they can because there's no competition anymore. Now, if you're, I don't want to keep using Sean Stasiak as an example, but if you're Sean Stasiak and you're taking this cut, are you doing it with like you're betting on yourself or, do you feel like they should have just stayed with their Turner con- or their WCW contracts? What was the idea? Their contracts were only 90 days. So as soon as they expired, they would be making no money. That's true. Well. It, it's it's the other guys. It's the main event guys that have like the year or two year, three year long contracts. It's people like Lance Storm. As soon as their contract runs out after the 90 day period, they're essentially out of a job. Ah. So it was, I, I assume like it, it, there's an... in sense of like betting on yourself but it's also a case of like this is now the only game in town and if they're going to sign you then you take the money because otherwise you're not making a living as a wrestler anymore and you're going back to the independence where it's especially at this point in time it's very fraught and they're few, few and far between and you're not going to make the same amount of money if any money so oh, yeah, yeah exactly. that's such a shame so the people that were signed were mike awesome bill demott lance storm Chavo Guerrero, Sean Stasiak, Johnny the Bull Stamboli, uh, Shane Helms, Shannon Moore, Evan Crages, Chuck Palumbo, Sean O'Hare, Mike Sanders, Mark Jindrak, Elix Skipper, Kiwi, uh, Lash LaRue, The Wall, Kaz Hayashi, Jamie Noble, uh, Jimmy Wang Yang, at the time it was Yun Yang, 
Stacy Keebler, Reno, Kid Romeo, and Jason Jett. The saddest thing about that is if I had to say the three biggest names of what you just mentioned, I would have said Chavo, Stacy, and probably O'Hare. Well, in terms of like what they achieve, what they would go well, I'm thinking really what they would go on to achieve. Well, O'Hare didn't do anything. Let's put it that way. He could have been saying with the devil's advocate gimmick, but in terms of what he actually did, he did nothing. Yeah, but at least he got to interact with Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. I mean, that's true, but Lance Storm was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Okay, Lance Storm, yeah. All right, I take it back. Replace O'Hare with Storm. But still, like, that's such a, a low crop of talent, you know? It, yeah. It, it's very weird. I think that is something I think they reveled in. I think they reveled in saying, look at what WCW really is or was. Well, it's a, lo- it's a lot of young talent that is was only, like, mid-card as the best in WCW. Right. And then the main names that they were thinking about in terms of commentary was uh, Scott Hudson, Mike Tanay, Joey Styles, Mark Madden, and the wild card, Jerry the King Lawler. Well, most of them would end up working for WWE at some point, even if Scott Hudson did the one-off. Lawler, of course, came back at the end of the year. The fact that Shivani's not on this list is a slap in the face. Well, they didn't want Shivani. I don't understand why he's... It's like, to this day, with what he does with MLW, he's still very good at what he does. Well, you know how Vince uh, holds grudges, and Tony Shivani used to work for WWF in the uh, like mid to, uh, mid to late 80s. And then he, Just... signed, with, then he signed with WCW. And I, I, I think I think he might have been too associated with that wrestling, Ted wrestling. Turner's wrestling. And uh, also he'd lost a lot of credibility with fans because w, the way that he was portrayed as an announcer towards the end of WCW's run. Uh. Essentially due to all the crave mismatching and the booking and the fact that he was always told to say that this night is going to be the biggest night ever. <laughs> yeah, I love Like every single week. Ah. Uh. That's uh, stuck with him, you know. Like people yeah. make fun of him to this day for saying that this is the greatest night in the history of our sport. Yeah, so fans had grown sick and tired of him, so they didn't. They saw no interest in bringing him on board either. That's really a shame. Um, so Jim Ross, by the end of April, was in talks with like a lot of people, but in terms of the big names, he was in talks with that hadn't already been signed. He was in talks with RVD, Booker T, DP, Chris Canyon, Billy Kidman. And uh, John Laurinaitis in a, to move into some sort of creative capacity. And you know what's funny is we noticed this in the WrestleMania 17 watching. Laurinaitis still had quite the mullet on his oh, head. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. So I think that would probably be the first thing that would go once he did actually sign. Yeah. But um, I said, uh, and we'll just wrap over the final talk about the new WCW, which unfortunately never came to pass. Spoiler alert for the coming months, but. Uh, essentially, there was a lot of pressure on this to succeed, mainly due to the fact that the XFL had been such a colossal failure, which we'll get onto in a little bit, because even though we've done our big discussion about the XFL in our February edition, so you can go check that out, it, this was still the month that the championship game happened. So we'll talk about that in a little bit later, but due to the fact that it had been such a colossal waste of money and a waste of time and a waste of 
any sort of effort. They needed this to go well. And if it wasn't going to go well, they wouldn't do it. You know, it's it's very weird how much all of this syncs up with what's happening in our current landscape. The XFL is likely going to fail again. We just saw the the folding of the American Alliance of Football, much like the XFL folded here in 2001. And I don't know why people try to challenge a juggernaut like the NFL, especially somebody like Vince, who doesn't want any challengers to his juggernaut, you know? Yeah, I think it's just a case of, well, Vince just wants to, once he's made a mistake, he wants to go back and redeem himself. And he's already earmarked the fact that I think he's already knows that he's probably going to lose about $300 million into the XFL into his first year. So like, if you've got that sort of money to throw around, then you really shouldn't have that sort of money to throw around. <laughs> yeah. It, it's probably it's probably the phrase that I'd go with it, but eh, he's a billionaire. He can do what he wants. Uh, yeah. So that's the uh, end of discussion about like the relaunch of WCW. So we move on to the next big thing for uh, news, which was The Rock. Uh, he was suspended in storyline, which allowed him to uh, leave and film The Scorpion King. His first, like, well, it was, obviously it was his, it wasn't his first foray into the movies, but his first as, like, a lead starring, like, Hollywood actor. Yeah, and people were all about The Rock at this time, and I think what The Rock has taught us is that Rome is definitely not built in a day. With with his WWE surge, he had a whole team behind him specifically focusing on him in such a niche market. But, you know, talent always rises to the top, and The Rock is the highest-paid actor in the world now, but he was nowhere near that once the Scorpion King wrapped up. No, I mean, I've seen The Scorpion King. It's not a great movie. And I wouldn't encourage anyone to watch it. Uh, it's, I mean, it's it's definitely like a sign of a very fledgling career for him. Yeah. I mean, you could have watched that in full. Obviously, The Rock has a level of charisma and ability that few other superstars have ever, ever matched. But you could have been forgiven for watching that and thinking, oh, you're just going to, this is just another, uh, uh, what's it called? Mr. Nanny? Yep. Yeah, stuff stuff along those lines for Hulk Hogan's uh, failed movie career, let's say. Um, but this is also the first time that The Rock starts in interviews saying publicly that his goal is to trade in the career as a WWF superstar into a career in Hollywood. Do you buy into the idea that The Rock still says to this day, well, everything I do in Hollywood is just... I'm exposing the WWE to a greater audience. No. Okay. <laughs> well, it's cool. I mean, I, 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 I can't understand why he says it, but it's it's not true. And the only okay. people who are stupid enough to believe it are wrestling fans. So it's I like... just want to make sure we're on the same page there, because I hate whenever he says that. And whenever John says it now, too. Well, I, I don't obviously believe that. I believe that he absolutely adores the WWF. And all WWE now as it is, but and he he knows he owes everything that he has to that company for giving him the initial exposure, and I believe that's why he does come back and he does make appearances because he does actually love the fans and 
he does have a lot of respect and gratitude to like Vincent Mann and everyone else in WWE for giving him the platform to become what he was to is today. I believe well, that, but I don't believe the fact that he's doing what he's doing to get more eyes on WWE because that's not true. Yeah. Um, apparently, there was also a story about um, The Rock meeting uh, Roger Ebert, the uh, famous critic. Uh, oh, yeah? And, uh, yeah, apparently, um, it was after Ebert had watched uh, Beyond the Mat, which is obviously the, the big wrestling documentary. And apparently, he was, once he did meet The Rock, he got into his ear and basically said, you need to get out of that like terrible business as soon as you possibly can and get into Hollywood. Well, that's kind of nice, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's, I it's think basically, that's nice. He saw a lot of potential in The Rock as an actual just like guy who, with a lot of charisma and ability. Even though his his early forays into the movies didn't really like connect as well as you would have thought they would have. Well, I actually think that's really nice because WWF was everywhere at this point, and anytime we're seeing it again, not to keep drunk person comparisons to today, but. With the John Oliver expose, I got a lot of people talking about how shady wrestling is. So it's always nice when people want the best for the humans behind the wrestling character and not just fry with the rest of that carny business, you know? Yeah, I would I would say so. Uh, as spoken about before, we'll move on to the XFL Championship Final. The Million Dollar Game took place on April 21st. Uh, I won't go into details on the game itself because I know you've spoken with Tony about the fact that you want to do a review of it for when the expo right. goes live. So, oh yeah, it's coming next year, guys. So I won't go blow for blow, but I will at least say that the Los Angeles Extreme absolutely destroyed the San Francisco Demons 38-6. Wow. Uh, it was a one-sided demolition. Apparently, San- uh, again, I don't want to go into too much details, but San Francisco's longest drive of the day was 13 yards. Uh, and the fact that it's like a million dollar game do you know what um, a million dollars would earn each player um, for the winning team I'd imagine something like eight grand oh uh, it's a bit more than that 26,000 hmm. so, they, so they were playing for $26,000 for this final game okay, uh, I don't wanna, but 2001 that's a lot of money yeah well I mean it's money probably more than they were making at the time so they probably would go for it but it just goes to i'm show just saying 26 then is a lot more than 26 now oh yeah absolutely but it was just like the disparity i think that's the sort of money that i think per player i'm trying to remember the comparison that i saw in a video about it i think you were saying along the lines of that was less money than the losing team on the pro bowl gets oh geez uh but that, I mean, that's just what it is for a fledgling organisation that didn't come back, even though Vince and a lot of people involved with NBC at this point in time were still adamant that it would come back for a second year. I'm glad they didn't, man, let me tell you. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you'll probably definitely say that after what I'll say here, which is, uh, you know, this quarter was the quarter that WrestleMania happened, so you'd imagine it was a profitable year, right? A profitable quarter? Uh, I, w- I would think so, WrestleMania 17. Well, apparently they they actually managed to lose about $15 million this quarter, and it was all pretty much due to the XFL, which cost the uh, WWF anywhere between... It was, it was somewhere between 50 and $100 million. That is awful. Yep. And, and it's just... you know, it's funny, because they just released 
the first quarter yesterday for 2019, and a lot of the blame for a decrease went to a superstar absences. But we're hopeful with this next quarter. And I don't think you could blame anything in 2001 on the absence of any superstar. No. I mean, the absence of sanity is probably the... Uh, and, not, and, not, and not wrestling sanity. But it's just the, uh, the absence of any sort of logic where this could have been like one of WWE's most profitable quarters ever. And it ended up, uh, ended up with a loss just due to the XFL. That is so terrible. I mean, it's, it's one of the fact that I, I've, I haven't actually got the full financial in front of me, what I should have done, but uh, this year was a lot less profitable. Like, the uh, financial year ending in May or April of 2001 was a lot less profitable than the two years prior to it, even though they were making more in terms of actual profits. The expenditures on the XFL and their other ventures like The World and stuff like that were just, like, racking up. Basically, everything yeah. that was non-wrestling was causing the wrestling business to suffer. Why? Why is it that you just you can never stick to what's making you the money? Because it's an embarrassing organization to be a part of. Rock. He's not in the wrestling business. He's in the entertainment business. Why is it that a person like uh, Tony Khan and his father have all the money in the world? Why the hell are they getting into this embarrassing business then? You know, I just I don't get it that. That uh, disconnect between Vince and wrestling, I'll never understand. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's so obvious. But I don't, I don't, I can't say what the reason is. Only he knows the reason. And that means that no one will ever know the reason. That's true. But we'll move on now past that thing because it's already depressing enough with the fact that the XFL is coming back and it's going to cost uh, WWE even more money. But it's all right. They'll make it all back in Saudi Arabia. So that's fine. But... We'll move on to uh, like TSN in Canada and Sky in the UK were censoring more and more WWE content. And the main reason to, for that is, we'll, we'll lead this into a discussion about, I think, the biggest flashpoint of the um, the WWE TV at this point in time, which is the two-man power trip and that attack on Lita. Oh, yeah, they beat the shit out of Lita, don't they, with the chair? They uh... beat Lita repeatedly with a steel chair to the back. I understand this was a time when man and woman violence was pretty much a weekly occurrence. But even that kind of stretched the boundaries beyond what was tasteful. I mean, I'm saying this like I'm trying to defend them. It's tasteful. Every interaction they had with a male superstar, like putting a woman through a table or just beating them up in the middle of a match or anything along those lines, it was wrong. And this was just another example of that, but a huge, like, gross blot on... Their, their approach to this sort of thing. How do you feel about same type of occurrence, but in the case of, like, this one came to mind with the Dudley Boys and, like, Tori or Trish, who would just try to use their sexuality to openly be a bad person, and then, oh, but they got what's coming to them. Is I, I, that any more, like... Is there a little more cushion there? Because it's like, ah, but, you know, the the devil got their due. I mean, it's logical in the sense that they're screwing with them, and so they're getting their comeuppance, which is slightly different. But it's still a case of, like, they're being cheered as babyfaces. I mean, this is why people have, 
like people thought wrestling fans were absolute morons and disgusting human beings because they would cheer women going through in tables. It just and and the baby faces are the ones putting the women through the tables. Every time. I mean, at least at this one, it was two heels beating up a woman, and so and they were the heels for it. Like the Dudleys putting Tory or May Young or Trish through a table or Stacey Keebler down the road or whatever. It's like they're the good guys in this and people are cheering them because they like seeing women get hurt. Yeah. I mean, and, and I can't say that's the only reason. I can't say that's the only reason. And as that, I don't think that would be the same reaction nowadays, even though it seems that the loudest pop you get every single year is Stephanie McMahon going through some sort of table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and so, but, I mean, everyone hates her because for that, for her character at the very least, anyway. So you kind of get that, but I, and it's not the same as intergender wrestling. I, I've always defended that I'm not. While it's it's not like always my cup of tea, I'm totally fine with intergender wrestling because they're at least like active participants in the thing. This was just a case of women getting assaulted by yeah. men that were a lot stronger. And overly- and overly sexualized women who were portrayed as weak in terms of physicality but they used their assets to get ahead like a lot of it is just head scratchingly bad in the 2019 context um we might as well move on to a bit more like just actual wftv because like i said earlier this was a time where they kind of started to put the foot off the gas I mean, you have basically every storyline at the moment is built around the two-man power trip and Vince McMahon and Linda McMahon, because obviously the McMahons are the actual stars of the WWF shows. It's not the wrestlers, it's always the McMahons. So this was a point in time where Linda decided to turn the tables of Vince McMahon and demanded a divorce from him, as opposed to the uh, him demanding a divorce from her, which led her to going to the comatose state. Uh, you know, I... Doesn't this all... Doesn't this also lead to Vince McMahon saying, I know what you want. You want another baby and the genetic jackhammer is coming home. Yes, I think it was, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh-huh. The one thing I would... I'd take it all back. I'd take back Montreal. I'd take back everything if we didn't have to suffer through the McMahon soap opera stuff that we've suffered through throughout the years. I mean, it's just, it's just too much. I mean... It, you get the sense of like, obviously the Austin stuff was great with Vincent Man, and it's not like Shane or Stephanie has ever done. And they've obviously done bad things and they've been involved in bad stories, but they're not bad characters. It's just that it's always about them, and even even when there's a feud going on with two other big people. I mean, have a look at like the Becky Lynch stuff. I mean, that for some reason decided to get a lot of McMahon involvement and then there's obviously rumours circulating that at SummerSlam the match is going to be Becky Lynch against Stephanie McMahon oh dear I uh, yeah the McMahons need to be stopped and they've got Shane McMahon feuding with Roman Reigns yeah it's like like, where where does where do you draw the line like it's is it going to I mean you can't even say this is going to stop when Vince McMahon is gone because the people running the shows are still the people that he's been pushing more than the other people. There's nobody who's been pushed in WWE more than Vincent Mann's family. You know, the only person in the McMahon family that I think this is appropriate for is Hunter, and that's because he's a wrestler. Oh, exactly. I mean, he is a legitimate wrestler, and he was for many years. And it's just a case of, like, 
he still does it every now and again, but now he loses matches because he's not. Well, he obviously beat Batista, but that was, that was two part-time stars going at it. He usually loses against the full-time roster stars because he is now part-time, and he's like at least in storyline-wise, he's not up to the same level of athleticism as the as the younger people are now. Yeah. Whereas you still have Shane McMahon beating the Miz and. When Stephanie comes back for her one-off matches, or whatever, unless it's Ronda Rousey, she might actually win against Brie Bella or whatever. You know what's a shame is, and this is the only modern talk you'll get, but Miz isn't going to get his win back, is he? No. Of course not. That's awful. <laughs> I mean, you think that's awful? Wait till uh, Shane McMahon pins Roman Reigns in a match. Uh... That'll, that'll, that'll be fun. Uh, but then we also have, so essentially the two-man power trip, Triple H and... Stone Cold, we've, I think we spoke briefly about the fact that this was Triple H's master plan to stay in the main event scene for longer, was to unify himself with Stone Cold for a little while and then feud with him over the WWF Championship. See, Would... now, there's conflicting reports on how this was all supposed to go because Bruce Pritchard, on his most recent WrestleMania 17 podcast, said the immediate idea was... Rock goes away because he's going away anyway, and they were going to do the double turn with Hunter and Austin. But Hunter demanded to stay a heel because he didn't want to turn babyface, so they ended up being a team. And, spoiler, I really enjoyed this as, as a kid, the whole tag team with them. But looking back on it, yeah, I think Hunter should have just went babyface and feuded with Austin. Well, absolutely. It's just a case of who who is the other babyface now that The Rock's gone? It's The Undertaker and Kane. And The Undertaker and Kane are great, but they're not going to be the same level of star as The Rock or Austin or Triple H. You're not going to turn Angle at this point in time. And even then, Angle still, while I obviously maintain how great a wrestler he was, he didn't have he didn't have that sort of intangible characteristic to put him over the top. Neither did Jericho, neither did Benoit. They obviously had a lot of characteristics and they would get their moments in the sun, but they're not people that you hitch your wagon to, essentially. Yeah, and I'll be honest, when it was a unified brand, I never felt that Kurt Angle, especially as a babyface, was the top babyface, you know? No. It was always, I mean, when The Rock came back, it was back to being The Rock. And realistically, what should have happened here is the Triple H should have gone babyface because they had been teasing that for a few months in the lead up to it. But Triple H being having the pull that he did have decided if if I feud with Austin straight away, then essentially he's going to beat me and then he's going to move on to his next feud at SummerSlam, which is probably going to be The Rock when he comes back. And so he's essentially a filler feud. So what he would try and do in the way that Triple H always did because he's a master politician uh, would hold on to being a heel for a while, team with Austin, win the tag titles, as we'll see in the Backlash review, hold the Intercontinental Championship while he holds the WWF title. And then when we lose all those titles and uh, Austin either blames me for it or something like that, I'll turn on Austin, become a huge baby face, and then I'll beat him for the title at SummerSlam. You know, it's crazy. And we can't get to this on this episode because we're only in April. But even then, apparently it was supposed to break off into Jericho and Jericho Austin 
Benoit Triple H. And I can't figure out where Hunter turns babyface unless he would have inevitably been, instead of Kurt Angle, you know, fighting against the Alliance, it would have been Hunter. Well, I think it's, again, we don't go too much in detail because I do want to watch this match as part of the main one. But the finish to the Austin Triple H, uh, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit match is Triple H hitting Stone Cold with accidentally with a sledgehammer to cost him the match. So that would have been the catalyst to them breaking up. Yeah. So I think I think they did have the plan in mind, and Triple H definitely had the plan in mind. But it's um, I I just think it was a way of it. It definitely like fizzled out in terms of like top main event baby faces after the rock left and that left a bit of a, a gaping void at the top of the card uh, uh other stuff that was going on so shame man was continuing to try and lure some wwf guys into wcw vince decided to use the big show to stop him amazing one of one of the most vivid feuds from this time period in my mind for the which way did he go which way did he i I remember that so well that this rivalry really sticks out. They wanted to push Lita back up to the um, the top of the women's division, but obviously China at the moment is the women's champion. Not that you would know because she hardly ever appeared on her TV during this period. Uh, they wanted to eventually just turn China heel, have a feud with Lita. Lita would eventually beat her and then China would be phased out. I would have liked that better than what happened. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that sort of thing in the in the months leading on. Uh, Triple H won the Intercontinental Championship from Chris Jericho, and then lost it for a week to Jeff Hardy. So this is Jeff Hardy's first run as the Intercontinental Champion during this uh, month. Uh, part of me believes this was, and again, I know I shit on Triple H a lot, but it, it feels to me very much like the Kevin Nash losing to Rey Mysterio thing, where I'll I'll show how like likable person I am because I'll let anybody beat me. So I'll let Jeff, I'll let this guy Jeff Hardy beat me for the Intercontinental Championship, and then I'll win it back a couple of nights over, and then that just shows that I'm the giving guy. And I would, I'm not gonna say that that's totally wrong, but I would think that. Moreover, this was like the beginning of, all right, guys, let's all kind of keep a very close eye on Jeff Hardy because throughout the years, Triple H and Hardy were. Very intertwined for a lot of Hardy's big moments. And this is like that first one where you're like, okay, Jeff Hardy, if they break off, he's going to be the Shawn Michaels and Nat's going to be the Gennetti, you know? Yeah. Um, there was also, uh, again, we obviously spoke about the Lita thing. I think the biggest blight on the creative at this point in time was the Steve Austin-Deborah interactions. Because Steve the, Austin... Cookies or... Is this too no, early for no, the cookies? It says in the cookies yet. This is Steve Austin being an abusive husband. Oh, boy. So essentially he would be uh, calling out Deborah, say, saying, like, stop. Because she was a kind of... She wasn't babyface, but she was, like, trying to understand why Steve had decided to join a partnership with Vincent Man. And so Steve would grab her by the arm and pull her around and tell her to go to this place or that place. I have to I have to ask this, and I I don't think this is the case, but like it would be remiss to me to ask it. Do you think being put into this sort of creative direction led to what happened between them down the road? Um, 
No, I think that they were likely on okay terms because I think Austin's substance issues hadn't hit the level that they would a year from this point. But I think that knowing what we know now, this is unnerving, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And we've crapped on Triple H, so I'll go ahead and say something about Steve Austin. I love Austin, but the fact that this is all kind of just swept under the rug is really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, there's a lot of big superstars in history in terms of, especially in sporting circles, that you just don't want to know too much about in terms of their behind the scenes life. It's not just like sportsmen or wrestlers. It's like people who are considered heroes in many places. Like they had, they had their flaws. Yeah, look at uh, Cosby, for example. Yeah, it's like people that, I mean, if you're in the UK, someone like Jimmy Savile would make sense as well. Like a guy who was a TV presenter and a beloved TV present, a beloved TV presenter for many years, and then you find out like years after his death that he molested a load of kids. It's like you, you, you get to that sort of thing, and what Austin did was terrible, but people were willing to. At the end of the day, people will be willing to overlook that sort of stuff because it's just too depressing, and people would rather just remember the wrestler, all the character that they saw, and not and not connect it to Steve Williams the um, man himself. But I would think that going into this, Deborah, even though a lot of the shine had passed from two years ago with you know her being with Jarrett and Jarrett covering her up. They knew that Austin and Deborah were married, and maybe this was trying to get that macho man Elizabeth rub, where it's like, oh, he's so abusive, what a scumbag, and somebody will rescue that pretty girl. You know, well, I think that's where they were going. Well, I think Austin was just trying to do everything possible to get booed, because yeah. it was his transition to being a heel was not going very well. I mean, he was going well in terms of his actions, and he was enjoying himself, but people were still cheering him. So yeah, they had two to... stubborn people in uh, Hunter and Austin, who one of them, as a babyface, would have fixed a lot of issues here, and they were both adamant on being a heel. Mm-hmm. And they had enough creative pull that they wouldn't be convinced to change their mind. But hmm. So we move, move on past that, past the TV side of things, to... Um... Let, let's talk about uh, wrestlers being wrestling fans being the worst. Uh, okay. So essentially, there was a um, a survey done by a uh, Gallup. I can't. I, I never searched it. Like what what they were, kind of organization they were, but essentially they did a survey of sports fan bases. And so they tested like eleven different sports, like the fans of all of those ones, and of their findings. So you had people like you had baseball, American football, college football, uh, tennis, stuff like that. And okay. uh, professional wrestling had the fewest number of fans, with only 15% of Americans claiming to be fans of the people surveyed. Uh, and they also yeah. said wrestling, wrestling fans heavily skewed towards the youngest Americans at this point in time, which is such a bizarre thing nowadays, because at this point in time, it was 30% of 18 to 29-year-old surveys were fans of the sport. Whereas nowadays, if you look at actual demographics and the viewing figures, the ratings, WWF's audience is mainly in their 50s. Yeah, it's because... A lot of the diehards just don't let it go. That's yeah. what it is. It's nothing but diehards. And that is upsetting, you know. That... Oh, I haven't got to the worst part yet. 
Oh boy, okay. So wrestling fans tend to have less formal education. As uh, 22, <laughs> as 22% of Americans with a high school diploma or less are fans, uh, <laughs> compared with just 6 of Americans with a college degree. So basically only 6% of people with college degrees were, well not 6%, but 6% of wrestling fans had a college degree. And the rest oh, of my so 4% that, didn't have it. So that's why Vince McMahon doesn't want to be associated with wrestling. And uh, similar patterns were also evident in terms of their income as well, with obviously definitely skewing towards the poorer side of things were wrestling fans. The only, the only ones where it was very similar was in NASCAR. I thought uh, we were coming on for a simple episode. I'm very sad. Oh, I, I haven't gone to the worst ones yet. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so Wake Forest University um, School of Medicine. Also, for a survey of uh, teenagers in Forsyth County and found out that uh, ones that are pro wrestling fans are more likely uh, than their peers to have violent dating relationships. So essentially, mm-hmm. they would they would be more likely to commit some sort of either it being involved in abusive relationships or commit uh, crimes while on dates. Uh, All right. And uh, just to cap it all off on this little sad section before we move on to something a bit more interesting. Uh the sad thing that you probably want to know is the fact that after USA uh, got rid of Raw, uh, even though their viewing figures had gone down due to the ratings, because Raw was obviously a big ratings, yeah, they were actually making more money in terms of advertising revenue. So not being associated with a wrestling promotion anymore actually boosted their advertising numbers. God. Yeah. Uh, why, why do we watch this? Uh, I... I I question that every single time. I have I have college education. So do you. Yeah, I have a university. I have a degree. Like... I think it's changed nowadays. I think... I would like to think that most wrestling... Not, not most. It's definitely not most. But more wrestling fans are... Uh, have a level of education which is more redeeming. We're a bit more sophisticated and nuanced. Uh. But I think at that point in time, especially with what the product, the Attitude Era was putting out, you were getting a lot of people with that mentality and that same sort of background of that, that is per- such a that is such a sad uh excerpt that you just read there well let's move on from that to the uh, death of ecw okay even sad <laughs> uh the hhg uh, corporation which was the parent company of ecw finally filed for bankruptcy in the early uh days of april um yeah so essentially that was just them wrapped up even though they'd been pretty much dead for like weeks or months at this point, uh, that was just the final nail in the coffin. Uh, well, at least they were able to move on and kind of salvage it by bringing some ECW guys some work. So, in uh, 1999, obviously due to the fact that they would file for bankruptcy, a lot of their financials came out to the media, so you got to see a few bits and pieces into that. So apparently in 1999, ECW grossed $5 million, about just slightly less than $6 million in total income. Uh, during the same period, WWF grossed more than $259 million, and WCW grossed more than $160 million. It just goes to show the disparity between the two. Well, yeah, by the end of it, there was really only one titan in town. Oh yeah, That's... but it's just, but it's just a case of like... You look at these two companies, even WCW in its dying days, was making, or let's say in 2000, which is ECW's, WCW's final full year and the year that they're pretty much like on death's door. 
they were making 120 million dollars uh well that's what they grossed anyway whereas ecw grossed only four million dollars so that's just a sign of like how much they were just like still just a small independent promotion at that point in time compared they might have been the biggest independent promotion around but they were still an independent promotion and the weirdest thing yeah. about 2000 is that they grossed less money than they did in 99, and in 2000 they actually had a television show. Whereas in 99 they were still just touring and doing live events and pay-per-views. Yeah, but that TV deal is always seen as something that was really more negative than it was positive for them, right? Well, it was mainly, it was mainly due to the fact that uh, they their pay-per-view numbers went down in 2000. So. Right. I don't know, that could be for a multitude of reasons, like they didn't have as much star power, maybe even moving on to TV made them seem a little less alternative. But... I would think losing losing your top singles guy in Taz and losing probably your top act period in the Dudleys really signified the end. And let's not forget, wrestling at this point was hot for a good four-year period. People were probably getting burned out. Oh yeah, I mean you can definitely see the fallback from that from like the as we go through the months, rainy months of two thousand and one. So they filed for bankruptcy on uh, the fourth of April, uh, claiming uh, over uh, eight point eight million dollars in outstanding debts and uh, and uh, one point three million dollars in assets. So they were, overall they're about seven and a half million dollars in debt. Uh, the biggest debt was to the family of Paul Heyman, uh, which they owed about $3.8 million. But they, oh. do, you, do you think Vince ever paid some of that back for the for the Heyman family? Uh, I think they paid the Heyman family. I mean, they would have paid to buy ECW. And I think, I don't know if Vince would have paid it back as opposed to HSG Corporation would eventually pay it back themselves because obviously they're the ones that owed them the money, so it's not really WWS responsibility. After they buy it, they don't take the debts. I mean, I don't know where they take the debts on, but they were actually they weren't buying the company, they were buying the brand, which is a very different thing. Yeah. Uh, there was also a lot of money owed to uh, different wrestlers, so Rob Van Dam was owed $150,000, Tommy Dreamer was owed $100,000, Joey Styles over 50 grand, Rhino 50 grand. Uh, Shane Douglas, forty-eight grand. Uh, Francine, forty-seven grand. Uh, it's just like list of people, looks like tons and tons of people that were owed anywhere between like a small number of thousands to like like so like Rob Van Dam at the highest one, one hundred fifty thousand. Like these people wow. were just like just not paid as well. So how rinky dink promotion is this? Like has such a cult following that it was just a badly run promotion. It was a creatively very well-run promotion, but in terms of just an actual company, it was absolutely terribly run. That is a damn, damn shame. It was just the idea of they were just they were too big to be an independent promotion. They were too small to compete with the giants, and you don't want to ever be in that situation. As this one, sh- as, as, there's as uh, go ahead. I was just say as their as their legacy shows. You, you know, and there's a lot them. of promotions in that kind of category right now oh yeah but uh we'll wait and see how that stuff develops um let's move on to some video game news because we're obviously both big 
wrestling video game connoisseurs. Uh, the Legends of Wrestling video game was like started to get into feelers. Did you ever play Legends of Wrestling? I played all three. There were three. There were three. I only remember the first two. There was other. The third one was probably the best one in terms of roster, but the second one I think is the better overall game. So this is a game, which by the way I think somebody should try again because the concept and the skeleton is very good, but the gameplay of it is so bad, so piss poor that it never truly allowed the concept to show how good it was. My favorite thing about the first one is that Rob Van Dam got in the game. Well, it's, essentially, they were just signing a load of people to this game that weren't signed with WWF. So at that point in time, Rob Van Dam wasn't signed. They'd get Hulk Hogan, the Road Warriors, uh, Roddy Piper, people, people along those lines to appear in the first game. The difficulty well, of doing that concept nowadays, obviously, would be the fact that everyone is kind of un, is kind of in the WWE bubble, but and they have certain rights over certain characters. Like they wouldn't be able to do something with Hulk Hogan because Hulk Hogan definitely has rights with WWF or WWE. I keep I, I confuse the two because we're in a 2001 at this point. In time. I know. <laughs> but, um, the weird thing about that was it, it was made by Acclaim, who have a very rich history in professional wrestling video games as they made every WWF game from 89 to 99. And then once they stopped making WWF games, they took on the ECW license. Perhaps, of, uh, I was going to go say, they were, they, were, they were part owners of WCW, uh, ECW as well. What? They, they owned 15% of the company. Wow. I, I believe that's... that's the case. I think... I think it, it, I might be slightly confused there, so don't take me as gospel on that one, but they definitely, they were one of the like the biggest ones owed money, essentially. So I think it was the fact that like Paul Heyman's family was like in charge, like had 85% of it, and then the rest of it was owned by a clone. Under the, under the HHD Corporation, as the parent company. And I'm, I'm, that, that's really news to me. I'm almost certain now that how they got Rob Van Dam for the first one then but did you ever play this game uh yeah I did it was it was terrible but at the time I didn't know any better really it's like I mean it's 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 really once you just see the graphics and everything like it's a very 2001 game uh but um did you play on the GameCube uh no, I played it on the PS2. And you played the second one on PS2 as well. I don't think I owned the second one. I only owned the first one. So I maintain that like I bought it. And fun story here: the guy at the EB Games, which is now GameStop, was like, "Yeah, have you tried SmackDown? I don't think you want this game." <laughs> um, but no, I ended up getting it, and. Yeah, I think I would have appreciated it more now, because at the time I knew nothing of territories and the actual era they were trying to portray. But again, that's why I say, with all the knowledge that fans have now, trying a game like that now would be much better. Okay, I think I got slightly confused. It says, like, a claim owning ECW. It didn't technically own ECW, but it was the idea of, like, 
when ECW declared bankruptcy, Acclaim was one of the biggest companies they owed money to still. Ah. So I think in terms of like the scale of it, like in the big terms of assets, so they owed Heyman's one, like the biggest portion of it. But then I think the next biggest along the lines was Acclaim. In terms of like the debts, I think, I, don't, I, can't, I can't remember the exact number. It's probably found in like one of these observers or anything along those lines, but it was definitely one of the biggest ones they had to pay back for the video games. Now, Acclaim itself wouldn't even last too much longer mm. because they they would go officially defunct in 2010, but they had kind of started to slow down in 2006, 2007. It's really a shame because a lot of my early gaming memories were of acclaim because of the amount of wrestling games they produced uh so let's move on to nicole bass <laughs> Fuck. Uh, so she was taken to wwf over court like just to take wwf to court over like several offenses uh she she'd alleged uh, sexual harassment against steve lombardi but- in particular so uh yeah so steve lombardi don't know brooklyn brawler uh, it was just a case of, uh, I can't really think, I think she was inappropriate touching of her or something along those lines. And she also alleged similar things with other wrestlers would just harass her behind the scenes, including people like Shawn Michaels and at the same sort of time. So this was about 99. She was around 99, 98, 98 or 99, I think. 99, 99. Okay. And uh, she also uh, claimed that she had been struck by an ungimmicked guitar by Jeff Jarrett. Uh, and so she wanted to get some sort of negligence pay for that. And then she also claimed unequal pay based on her gender. Of everything that she said, that last one's probably the only one that's true. How would you compare... What, what level was Nicole Bass at? Yeah. You compare it the, at? It's the idea of the like... Issue. So do you care, compare her wage to Funaki? And if Funaki is making more money, then it is unequal pay? I, I, mean, I, I would say in that era, she was paired up with Val Venus, and she was seen as kind of an attraction because she had, you know, the the notoriety of Howard Stern. So I'd say if her pay was significantly less than Val's, then maybe. But the idea of the Brooklyn Brawler sexually harassing her is laughable. Well, especially based on that Kamala song. Yeah, I was like, Brawler's... Uh... I mean, to be fair, out of any woman, she probably would have been his type then. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> very, a very masculine. But it's, it's, it's sad to say because she's not alive anymore, so I shouldn't really uh, have a go at her too much about that. But but uh, the point is, Brooklyn Brawler was not into what she was selling, let's say. Mm. And so you have... Um, so after that, we have uh, Stu Hart was taken ill during this month as well. I don't want to bet this all too depressing, but uh, too late. Yeah, I can't really help it too much. Uh, There's the idea of this one where he's thinking he he essentially went into intensive care for a little while, uh, fears that he had to ha- would have to have a pacemaker fitted or a heart transplant. Uh, he didn't pass away until 2003, I believe. So this wasn't it was it was serious, but it wasn't like deathly serious at this point in time. 
but he was definitely like on his last legs, unfortunately. But one thing I didn't know until much, much later, but by 95, the man was already like 80 years old. Mm. He was not young, even when they were showing him on TV. Like he was, they were considerably older. Yeah, he was, I mean, he he kept himself in good shape, obviously, due to the, the dungeon stuff. I don't think he allowed himself to like lose uh, too much mobility. But by this point in time, he's, I can't remember what age he was when he passed away, unfortunately, but he was definitely, like, he's he's only two years away from passing away. So his body was starting to break down a little bit more. There's a sad moment in this year where uh, Jericho and Benoit, they win a match and they go over to raise his arms and he just looks like out of it completely. I mean, because I was fortunate to be there at that point in time, because at this point in time, it looked pretty grim for him. But he, he survived this one. Uh, I think he did eventually get a pacemaker feared as a result of this. Did uh, uh, did Helen go first? Yeah, she um, she dies at the end of this year. Wow. So, uh, yeah, he survived a couple of, about a year and a half afterwards, I believe. Uh, yeah. So I I, I changed. To, I don't think any more of the uh, news is pretty depressing. So we'll end on a couple more. Uh, looking towards the future, almost. Uh, what do you think? What, what would you say Eric Bischoff is doing right now in two thousand and one? Now that now that ECW now WCW is no longer a vision. Uh, what what would he be doing? My mind says some in a van somewhere with Jason Hervey chasing down Scott Bale. Well, funny enough, he's still in the wrestling business. No. And he what, is... that XWF? No, it's uh, the Matt Rats. The wrestling promotion in Calgary. Have you ever heard of Matt Rats? Never, not once. Uh, so essentially this was like, a promotion in uh, Canada uh, where Eric Bischoff was executive vice president of, de- of uh, development. Uh, the thing that was the gimmick, essentially, of this promotion is that no wrestler was over the age of 21. They were all teenagers, essentially. And, I don't hate that. I mean, the idea was that this was meant to be the fact that it was like in an actual ring in an arena, and it was it had medical personnel nearby and was more regulated. Was meant to be like a safe alternative to backyard wrestling. I don't. You know what? I like that idea. Would you, especially you, given the time period? I think that's a very safe. Uh, alternative and a nice business concept. So, do you want to know some of the alumni of the Matt Rats promotion? Would I actually know them? Yes, you would. Okay. Uh, what well, names like Harry Smith? Uh, okay. Nat- Natalia. So TJ and Teddy as well, I assume. Yeah, Tyson Kidd and uh, Teddy Hart are both in it. Uh, Jack Evans. Yeah. And, and Renee Dupree. All at one point or another wrestled for Matt Rats. The scary thing here is that Rene Dupree would go on to be like a tag team champion less than two years from this point, right? I mean, yeah, I think he's, he, for a time, I don't know if he still is, but oh, actually he isn't because Nicholas, obviously. But uh, at, at one point in time, he was the youngest champion in WWE history. Uh, when he won the tag championships, I think he was only 19. Even beating out Dijkstra? Well, Dijkstra didn't, uh, have, hadn't been around at that point in time. 
Oh, uh, but but Dykstra would beat him out. Uh, I I can't say with any certainty for that one. I know at the very least that Dupree held the title when he was nineteen, and that at, at that time, at the very least, he was the youngest champion in WWE history. That's insane. Uh, and in terms of commentary, it was Joey Styles and Don Callis. Uh, Cyrus at the time. That's a. I would like to watch some of this. I couldn't find any. I could find the trailer to like of the initial thing, which is like a four-minute clip on YouTube, which is very, very, very poor quality. So you can hardly make any of it out. But I couldn't find any actual shows. Maybe there's some more like very deeper in the like corners of the internet, but I couldn't find it. Huh? I need to search this out because that's actually a decent lineup and a safe alternative to you know, backyard wrestling, even though I'd argue that half of the people working were probably more trained than some of the people that we would see in promotions like the XWF. But man, that's pretty crazy. And then just one final bit of this uh, reheated tags. Uh, UWF, which was one of the WWF's uh, feeder promotions at the time, so, in terms of what they had in terms of feeder promotions, they were people that were just promotions that still worked independently of themselves, but would get WWE talent every now and again come in to wrestle for them, and then eventually that WWE would scout talent from those to move up to like the main roster. And they would kind of move these people around as well. So the UWF was kind of a, I'd say like a lower tier one, but a smaller one, and then OVW and like Memphis Wrestling and stuff like that were the biggest ones. Uh, but I just wanted to mention UWF because the show they put on on the 25th of April had some interesting names on it, which I thought was uh, would be nice to share. So the main event was Edge and Christian teaming up. Obviously, they were obviously already big stars in WWF, but that was just an idea of sending talent over. And they main evented with Frankie Kazarian against Frankie Kazarian and Nova, who we've spoken about in the past, eventually ended up being Simon Dean. Funny enough, their team name was Evolution as well. So, just a lot of up and down stuff going on through time in WWE. Uh, You also had Molly Holly uh, face Victoria, before Victoria would go onto the main roster sometime in 2002. Uh, You had Samoa Joe, was the UWF champion. So... Just got to show at this point in time, Samoa Joe 2001 is still a big deal. Uh, even like 18 years later at this point. And then he defended the title against Tommy Dreamer, who was, wasn't, hasn't quite signed for WWF yet, as far as I'm aware. Uh, you also had Prototype, who would later be known a bit more famously as John Cena, uh, took part in an injury angle on the show. And then you had, uh, a Another tag team match, which generated a lot of buzz, between uh, Nathan Jones and John Heidenreich against the team called Gorgeous and Young, or uh, probably better known by the acronym G-A-Y. Yep, that's the kind of uh, level we're looking at right now in 2001 WWE. Uh, And then also the interesting part about that is that uh, Christopher Daniels was, even though he had been let go, from his uh, WCW contracts and not picked up by WWE, was behind the scenes booking a lot of the show. Because even at this point in time, Christopher Daniels was a veteran of the independent scene. 
about like eight years in, eight, nine years in. So that's just like an interesting little part of the uh, UWF and just an insight into just like the future of WWE that was being formed off the back of these smaller promotions before we had an NXT or a, a anything along those lines. Even when OVW was a bit more just brought into the circle as like the only big one. So you go through OVW, you go through FCW, and then you get into WWF or WWE. Uh, this was just like just a little promotion that had a lot of the future of WWE within it. I'm sure if we look, there will be a lot of these gems because, you know, a lot of these guys had to get their start somewhere. But it's so nice that we're in a much healthier environment now. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's it's good to be in a situation where you know where people are going. And NXT is a, a lot bigger and getting a lot more exposure than UWF probably ever did. But at the same time, it's. I'd say it could be more useful to be involved in like just going from promotion to promotion and trying to get over in each one with different characters. I mean, I, I don't know. Either way can have benefits, and each one either way has drawbacks. But yeah, I think there wasn't necessarily an issue with OVW. Like OVW, it obviously gave us, you know four great talents and like Cena, Batista, Lesnar, and Randy. But I think the thing with OVW was when they became too much of a factory, like they all had the same haircut, all had the same build. That's where the issues came in. Yeah, I'd imagine so. And now the biggest issue with NXT is the fact that they can't to the main roster and they're completely different from what they were in NXT. Yeah, and then they, they die. Which is... yeah. It's so funny that they do that because NXT has more exposure than, you know, an OVW, uh, anything else ever did. How is it that they bring them up now and they're just like, hey, we're going to crap on you? I don't know. Maybe it's just a case of. I mean, it wasn't always the case. I mean, look at Santino Morella in OVW. He was a. When, at the time he was called up to as Santino Morella, he was portraying a Russian like martial arts expert. And then he gets called up and then he's just an Italian uh like bumbling fool. So You know, but I, like even that I think it, it's fair because OVW didn't have the exposure. You know what I mean? Like they were a local market. Well, yeah. Well, that's the that's the issue. Is really like a case of like uh, when you did have an OPW or a UWF or uh, an FCW or something like that, people weren't watching you week to week. Well, they were watching you live, but they weren't watching you on TV or very often anyway. Or if it was, it was very like locally contained. So they could call you up and completely change your gimmick, and no one would know any difference. Nowadays, they see NXT people, and then if they call them up and they're completely different, then people are going to complain about it. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest biggest difference is that nowadays they they do get more exposure and they do get more time in NXT. But the, the issue with that is if they call up to the main roster and Vince McMahon doesn't like what their character is in NXT, he'll just scrap it immediately and then they come back completely different. Um. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the one thing we're always going to notice is the buck stops with Vince. Absolutely. And I think that will just that will be a 
draw the line under the reheated tags for this month, and then we move on now to our show review of the month, which is Backlash 2001. Great pay-per-view. Well, not great for me because this is starting to really get into the time where I can recall it, so it's all got this like childhood warmth surrounding it. Oh, uh, see, so yeah, I have a, I mean, just as an overview of it, uh, this show was very disappointing in many ways to me. Uh, I think it's, it's difficult because they, WWF won a very good run of pay-per-views at this point. Uh, WrestleMania X7 is one of the greatest pay-per-views and definitely one of the best WrestleManias of all time. Uh, uh, no Way Out 2001 is a very much a hidden gem. Uh, Royal Rumble 2001 is great. Armageddon 2000 is great. Uh, probably stretching all the way back to like Survivor Series of that year, and Survivor Series was probably I can't remember anything memorable about Survivor Series 2000. So I assume that's one that doesn't really hold up too much. But Backlash 2001 was just uh, I didn't like some of the matches. Let's put it that way, and I didn't like some of the feuds going into it as well. So it's, def- it's definitely not, obviously I wasn't watching live at the time, so I've had to go back in time and watch it. But there's just a few bits and pieces that just don't really hold up as well, in my mind. But Yeah, which is fair. But it's, it's not terrible. It's definitely better than a lot of pay-per-views that I've seen in the last year or two. Absolutely. But, but it's, I think it's definitely the weakest WWF show we've seen so far. And guess what, pal? They're only going to get worse. Well, this one took place April 29th, 2001, from the Allstate Arena in Rosemont, Illinois. Uh, an announced attendance of 15,592. Uh, buy rate was around uh, 375,000, which was a significant drop from 2000's uh, 675,000. But then again, the 2001 was headlined by Triple H against The Rock for the WWF Championship, with basically every man involved in the process and Stone Cold in The Rock's corner. Yeah, Backlash 2000, I, I have a friend who likes to say Backlash... 2000 is what WrestleMania should have been. Absolutely. Yeah. I I not I was so upset because I forgot that this that was 2000 and not 2001. I was so. Oh, looking you thought we were sh- getting ready to cover that? Yeah, I, I was so looking forward to watching that show, and then I realized, oh, this is the one with The Rock, and The Rock's not there, and it's Austin and Triple H against the Brothers of Destruction, and and that might have fed into my idea of, yeah, this isn't a very good show. But, yeah. but had a couple of heat matches as well, just to cover it. So uh, Jerry Lynn made his uh, in-ring debut and defeated Crash Holly for the Light Heavyweight Championship. The Light Heavyweight Championship seemed to be the title that people won on their debut. Yeah. So you had, you had like, well, not Gilberg, essentially, but Dwayne Gill had been wrestling for a while, but it's like that was his first real, any sort of, like, given something to do. And then you have S.A. Rios winning it on his debut, and now you have Jerry Lynn winning it on his debut. And I believe Christian won it on his debut as well. Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah. So, you yes. know, you come in and you get a title. Mm. Uh, and then you had uh, Lita defeated Molly Holly. Uh, both matches were probably about, what well, I think the Lynn match was about four minutes and the Molly Holly-Lita match was about two minutes. So basically yeah. most of Heat was just built around promoting the show that was coming on. Do you ever miss the the Heat layout or do you think we're pretty close to it now with the kickoff it's just the kickoff show based on what i saw because i I just flicked through the heat episode it's basically just the kickoff show with just a few more 
cutaways to the crowd and talking with the and it doesn't obviously have a panel it just has the announcers talking about it i feel like the heat shows because they were on a network and they were on you know they had such a clear vision the build to the pay-per-view that final sell for the pay-per-view was very much more strong than we would see now in a kickoff yeah i'd, I'd agree with that uh, so opener of the actual main show was the Dudley Boys against X Factor. Uh, first thing I noticed immediately, WWE Network has take has gone rid of X Factor's original theme music and replaced it with just some generic, just any sort of music. Did uh, you not like Uncle Cracker? I mean, I, I mean, it's just not really. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you could tell. I mean, I saw somebody just do like an unpacking of the of the their entrance at one in one video at some point in my life. And it's just like the song from Uncle Cracker, just with the word X Factor thrown into it. Yep. That's basically, and it's just, it's just like terrible, terrible editing. What made them say, you know what? This Uncle Cracker song needs to be used. I have no idea. Maybe they just somehow got the rights to it and thought, well, we've got to use it somehow. You think Vince was just like driving one day and just... I like this Uncle Cracker. We gotta give this song to somebody. Oh, we'll just stick it with X Factor. I, I mean, I can't think of any other reason. So it must be that. Uh, also, I noticed, like, basically from the start of this, there was a guy in the front row just carrying an absurd amount of cotton candy. <laughs> just like, <laughs> it was just, I mean, obviously it was a vendor, but it was like, it was like the size of, like, like part, like a small part of the stadium almost. It was just covering the first part of the screen. I was just like, I was just mesmerized by how much cotton candy he was carrying. Ridiculous. You know, living your best life. You're at a WWF match. You're eating your cotton candy. So like, uh, the match is like within like less than a minute old, and there's already tables chance. Do you think? Uh, and again, you have to preface this immediately with obviously the Dudley Boys were very over, but were they only over because of the tables? You know what? When you look at the genuine legacy of the Dudley Boys, now, you and I will see this differently. You and I will see this as great tag team, great promo, but the overall view of the Dudley Boys lives and dies by the table, does it not? I can't help but think that nowadays, like, fans, for some reason, and I know table spots are cool, but every, not, not it's not just even just Dudley matches, but nowadays, like, if there's some sort of hardcore match or street fight, everyone just immediately starts chanting for tables. Why it's is like, that? I mean, like, I they're cool, but they're not, like, I need to see somebody crash through a table. Like how John Oliver made fun of it. You know, every show should be called Not a Guy Exploding Through a Table. I guess that's, like, a wrestling thing of, yeah, I want to see somebody break a table. Uh, yeah, I think there's just, like, something that people are just interested in seeing. And, I mean, it's obviously, like we say, it's, they usually have cool spots, but it's just a case of fans would probably be happy if a no-DQ match started, some guy just knocks it down, gets a table, puts the guy immediately through a table and wins. That's <laughs> just what they want to see. Yeah, but, you got what you paid for. But, obviously, the X-Factor trio has a bit of a... It doesn't have exactly a glowing reputation in terms of just, like, looking back in the history, but... They, they were talented guys. All three of them were talented guys. I mean, at this point in time, X-Pac is getting booed out of the building every time he's doing anything. Which and I, I thought, never I never understood. I, I don't know. I think people just got... And I can't say for certain because I wasn't watching live that, that time. 
But I think people just got tired of the fact that X-Pac just didn't change. Like, he was always... After he came back as DX, he was he was still X-Pac from DX, just in a different faction. Well, like, what was he supposed to do? You have to realise, as far as his mainstream exposure, he was the one, two, three kid, and he wasn't going to go back to being a kid. You know, he then he was six, which is basically the NWO version of X-Pac. I know, but, like, you just look at the other people. Like, obviously, Just Incredible's new, so he's still, like, fresh to a lot of people that are watching that hadn't seen him in ECW. And then you have Albert, who's moved from Prince Albert to Testin Albert to now in this faction. So he's at least, like, even though he's not really changing his character up too much as the big man that does a lot of impressive moves, he's still, like, he's moved around a bit, so people are less sick of him, whereas X-Pac just looks like a guy who isn't in DX anymore that wishes he was still in DX. That's um, at least my interpretation. And yeah, and I think that that's fair. It's kind of like how we've often said, X-Pac Heat should be rebranded as Baron Corbin Heat. Oh yeah, I, th- yeah. I think I think it fits more with Baron Corbin now. Like he, he's not the assistant raw general manager he's not the raw general manager but he's still wearing corporate casual for no reason mm-hmm. uh so just going through the match the match itself is like fine it's, it's it's nothing special but it's a pretty good opener for a tag team match uh teddy long at one point sees that uh devon is about to go for the uh the headbutt to the groin spot and so immediately like clocks it and then decides oh yeah i better walk over here and not look at what's going on even though i absolutely know what's about to happen like, no, no, I never liked that move. Like it was fine for a no DQ match, but I hated that it was somehow worked into every match. It was very contrived. And the fact that they never stopped doing the Ueda! like like they'll still do it today. It's just so dated. It's very nineties, yeah, very nineties. Uh, then you had um, X Factor One with a double super kick on Bubba. I was very surprised that Bubba took the pin on this one. Like you would have um, thought, you would have thought that there's a tear in the Dudley Boys and it's Spike, then Devon, then Bubba. So why would Bubba be the one that takes the pin? Maybe to try to put that X factor over. I really thought they were a good stable. They could have been something, you know. Uh, potentially. I mean, I can't, I can't say for certain because I'm still just watching them back for the first real time again after just, like just casually looking at them every now and again through um. A historical perspective but i mean i've i've always thought that Al, uh, albert was very underrated he was a very yeah. very good wrestler and obviously he's now in a position where he's in charge of the performance center or at least like uh the head trainer so it, hopefully he's uh sending some of that knowledge over uh and then at the end of it you had x factor wanted to put bubba through a table the dudleys fall out of it and then they free dx pack through the table to send the crowd home happy well, not home happy. They're there for a while. But, no, they're, uh, they're just getting there. Actually, the this is this is uh, one of the pay-per-views, spoiler alert, where they really don't. Second pay-per-view in a row, they, they really do not send the crowd home happy. Yeah, it's becoming a trend, unfortunately. And I don't think that trend ends anytime soon in this year. But uh, so we have a backstage segment where William Regal meets the Duchess of Queensbury backstage. I'm Rob! Happy. Do you know who the Duchess of Queensbury is? No. Well, would it, how would I? How would you like to know that she is the most recent recipient of the Warrior Award? 
Get the fuck out. Yes, it is Sue Agenson. Oh, that's awesome. That it's, is so cool. It just feeds into more of my weird situation of like, <laughs> we were obviously meant to do this show this year. <laughs> like, this is the year we should have brought 2001 Wrestling Odyssey because it's all just coming together. That, that's awesome. She has a terrible English accent. Speaking as a, a true She's got myself. some kind of an accent, but they yeah. tried to make it more British. Regal is a fantastic, as he always is. I, I, Regal, I, yeah. I'm loving this for the main period, like this period of time, just going back and watching William Regal is just pure entertainment for me. You know, one thing I noticed about this card is there's a lot of gimmicks attached mm. to it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this. Like, it was, it's silly. But it's good, silly. <laughs> well, I will get on to it. But then also had Kurt Angle interviewed backstage by Lillian Garcia. Basically just talking about how Ben was not the best in the world and he'll force him to tap out multiple times tonight. Uh, Lillian's face just looked like she was just in a constant state of shock. With everything that Kurt Angle say. This but, is the... Uh, she's much better as a ring announcer than as a backstage interviewer. Yeah, the only good backstage interview she ever had was like with The Rock, and that's because the, he always jokes about her wanting to get off the people's strudel. And then she would literally say, yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh. Uh, now we move on to, I, I actually think this is my favourite match of the entire show. Uh, Rhino against Raven for the Hardcore Championship. Last good Hardcore title match. I love, I mean, this makes me pine for the Hardcore Championship to come back, because this match is so much fun. Uh, Rhino looked in really good shape. Like he looks like he's twice the size that he is. Like, like, well, he he looks like twice the size of that guy now. Like he's eaten Rhino. Like Rhino has eaten Rhino. <laughs> yeah. And then a uh, Raven comes out with a shopping cart. Raven's now being booked as a face. So initial ideas for this show was it was meant to be Raven against Eddie Guerrero for the European Championship. Uh, but for some reason in the uh, SmackDown before this, they changed uh, so Matt Hardy became the European champion. So Matt Hardy defeated Eddie Guerrero, and they changed it to a triple threat match, which didn't involve Raven at all, and Raven was put into the hardcore title match instead. No real explanation. That's really weird, because I would have liked to see a one-off match between Raven and Eddie Guerrero. I think Raven still had a lot to offer as... We wouldn't really see in WWE, though you would see in other promotions for the next, I would say, three to five years. He still had a little bit more to give, and he never got to really shine as the Raven character in WWE. Well, this match was great, and it was a great show, and Raven did have a lot to offer, because even if it was just in a hardcore capacity, like these two were, they, they came out some really innovative spots to use with the weapons like it wasn't just i mean there was a lot of people hitting over the head with signs and trash can lids and stuff like that but you have like the um like the step up off the, the steel steps into a a crossbody that went through a steel chair you had uh uh there was one with a rhino when he got a um sign to the head uh it sounded like a literal gunshot like it was an explosion and the crowd just the crowd was really popping for all this stuff. You would have thought they would have come desensitized to shots of the head at this point, but they would react into everything that was happening in this match. Uh, you have uh, Raven drives the uh, shopping cart into Rhino's midsection. Uh, oh, I love this spot where uh, Raven, when Rhino's lifting up the cart to try and attack Raven with it, 
uh, Raven pushes a trash can into Rhino's face, and then Ra- Rhino drops to the floor and drops the shopping cart onto his chest. That was like one of my favorite spots. It was just a really fun match. Like maybe the best two months or the best month, I guess, because WrestleMania did happen this month that Raven ever had in this company. Oh, because yeah, I'd, 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 it would definitely be out there. The but, weird uh, thing is, again, and we talked about this doing WrestleMania. Kane walks out of Mania as champion, and three weeks later, couldn't be further from the match. Yep, just the Huckle title was just changing hands repeatedly. Uh, so you have an instance here of a Rhino attempts to the goal, he misses, it goes straight through the back of a shopping cart, which was Love just that. it was so, it needs to be per, like inch perfect because he could just really hurt himself if he hadn't. I'm sure he did hurt himself, but he would have hurt himself a lot worse if he hadn't gone right where he needed to. And then Raven just beats his the back of his head repeatedly with a kitchen sink. I love the kitchen sink. They need to use the kitchen sink more often. Well, yeah, they gotta have everything, including the kitchen sink. Yeah, and then just during the replay of that, uh, Rhino hits a gore on Raven out of nowhere and then wins the match. So the the finish was a little out of nowhere and flat, but otherwise I thought this was a really, really fun match. It was... I don't know if I'd say it's my favourite match in the show, but it's... It's up there. So you had um, like a replay of the Shame at Man fairy tale promo. Which way did he go to build up to the uh, Last Man Standing match? I got pissed off at this, not in this instance, but in the uh, the fact that they also did the same exact thing during the promo building up to the Big Show Shame at Man match. Like, think, why do you need to show this repeatedly? Yeah. Like, like you took up three minutes of time that you could have added to another match. To you could have added that to the Rhino Raven match. And that would have probably been more useful. Well, which way did he go? Which way? Is... Uh, you have I, to... I love this. And fun fact about uh, this show is it's the debut of the Shane McMahon theme song. Well, a version of the Shane McMahon theme song. It's not quite the Shane McMahon theme song yet. That was the thing that I noticed too much of it because it's, it's, not, it's not his current entrance theme. It's very similar, but it's not the same. No the... clue why they didn't do this for WrestleMania when he came out to his father's theme song, but whatever. They didn't plan ahead. It's funny, though. Imagine that. Uh, Steve Austin arrives. He's roughly grabbing Jeb- Deborah by the arm to like just drag her into the building. Uh, so, yeah, great signs there. And then uh, Jonathan Coachman tries to interview the Duchess of Queensbury to find out the rules of the match. But uh, William Regal stops him. Uh, again, another funny segment. Uh, then you have uh, the, then we do have the Duchess of Queensbury rules match, William Regal against Chris Jericho. Now this is a very much a love or hate match, and I can't say I loved it. So but... I, I just I like Regal was at his best when he was doing this fun, silly in America, but you know ingenious British comedy. Like, and I just enjoy that style of comedy and he did it really well i can't ever say anything bad about a match like this well my favorite ma- my favorite moment of it was when regal gets pushed into the duchess's lap and the face that he pulls when he comes out of it like he's just like <laughs> like seen a ghost or anything along those lines like it was amazing <laughs> like he was about to vomit he's he his facial expressions are just so slapstick it's incredible and uh, Jericho is a great foil for oh, yeah, a definitely. guy like Regal. 
because he's just an asshole, but like a, an asshole that you like because he's funny and witty. Whereas Regal is like he's a bit more obviously very gentlemanly and stuff like that, but people hate him due to that side of things. He's very much like an anti-Attitude Era guy, like from yeah. the Attitude Era and thriving as a heel, but like he, he couldn't work any other way in this sort of era. Uh, in terms of like the actual match, it was very basic, I thought, as an actual match. And then obviously you have the interruptions with the Queensbury rules. So what happens is that uh, Jericho hits the line soul and then the bell rings and the Duchess informs us that uh, it, that was the end of the first round. So we might have had a, a bit of a round system involved in this one. Yeah. And then uh, then Jericho forces uh, Regal to tap out to the walls of Jericho. And then Duchess informs us that it's uh, you can't win by submission. You can only win by pinfall. And then later on when Regal hits a... Uh, I think it, it hits it with the uh, scepter that the Duchess is carrying, and then it's turned into a no DQ match. And then Jericho starts trying to like take advantage of the fact that it's no DQ by just repeatedly stomping on Regal's uh, crown jewels, if we call it that way. And then uh, Jericho like takes out uh, private security and then throws the Duchess into the ring because you have to be up a woman in any segment that a woman's involved, even if she, this woman isn't even a wrestler, and he puts her in the walls of Jericho. So yeah. she should she should have earned the uh, Hall of Fame thing just for that. Knowing who she is now, I gotta hate that. Mm. And then uh, Regal uh, like hits him with a couple of times with like the chairs, just like it's the same sort of finish as the Rock Austin one, just a couple of chair shots to the back and then pins him. Uh, right. So I thought the match was just like I can only say it was serviceable. It wasn't very memorable or exciting. And the the gimmick is something that you really have to just level how you think it's, oh, it's a nice bit of fun. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that it's a bit of fun. But you could also say that it's really, really stupid and it makes Jericho, it makes both guys look bad because Regal should have been beaten multiple times. And it makes Jericho look bad because he's just, why didn't he just like, as soon as he got screwed out of it, like the first time, why didn't he just walk out and say, oh, fuck this, I'm clearly not going to win. I guess it's you that know, sort of thing. Eh, but... That's where you're inserting logic into an illogical situation. I I liked it. I think it's one of those things with the benefit of hindsight. Because if I was watching this today and this affected, you know, my job and what I'd be watching tomorrow, I'd be pretty pissed off. But I liked it. But I did not know. Now knowing that Sue Aitchison was put in the walls of Jericho, man. Ultimate heel, Chris Jericho. Ultimate heel, Chris Jericho. Uh, so they got cut backstage. Big Shane meets with Vincent and they both just shake hands and promise to destroy Shane and they do a pair of evil laughs. And then we Can, move on. Oh, go ahead. That's so Vince, a pair of evil laughs. Yeah, exactly. And then we move on to the Chris Benoit Kurt Angle Ultimate Submission match. Uh, I'm assuming this is your favourite match of the night. Um, yes, because I love pure pro wrestling and. Nobody was better at it than these two, and I hate, openly hate, that I have no issue watching Benoit matches. But when he's so good, they, it just is what it is. I love the art form, and he was a master. Period. See, I'm uh, again. This is terrible because I I love Kurt Angle Chris Benoit matches. I didn't enjoy this match, and I'm starting to think maybe I just don't like Iron Man matches. Or yep. 
the equivalent of that sort of thing with the honest mission. At least in this one, you didn't have you had the clock on screen the entire time, and people weren't counting down from ten every minute. Yeah, because wrestling fans at this point were actually just more interested in watching the people and not making themselves famous. But um, but I just think the armored submission stipulation I thought was dumb, especially just due to the fact that the only two submissions that these guys have been building up in the in the build up to this were the ankle lock and the crossface. So when Angle forces Benoit to tap early on to a knee bar, the crowd isn't really popping for the knee bar because it's not like Angle had won a couple of matches in the build up to this using a knee bar. Like you kind of have to build up to it really. And then Benoit uses a cross arm breaker and ben, uh, Angle taps out to that. It's just like the crowd isn't popping or getting like invested in the near falls that you would get in a normal Ironman match or a typical match or even just a regular submission match. They're just getting they're, they're just seeing a load of random submission holds forcing people to tap out, which they don't see every now and again. And I think I agree with you in the sense that it looks like really good wrestling and I'm not taking anything away from the actual quality of the wrestling. I just think the crowd didn't know what to expect and were completely lost by about halfway through this match. Yeah. And I would agree with that, but it's... I, I just miss stuff like this, I guess. I miss two guys going at it, the people aren't chanting, this is awesome. Like, I was able to keep my sound on for a technical wrestling match. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, that's, that's fine. That felt good. So, at one point, obviously, uh, Angle goes 3-1 up after um, uh, using the ankle lock. So he'd use a steel chair to knock Benoit out when the referee's back was turned, and then he uses a um, steel... Then he puts him in a the ankle lock to go 2-1 up, and then he puts him in the crossface pretty soon after to make it 3-1. Uh, crowd is slowly starting to peter out. like They're pretty dead during the period where Angle is 3-1 up and he's just doing moves to Benoit. Uh, then Angle taps out to a half Boston Crab, uh, which is weird because Benoit had the sharpshooter on before then. And it's like, why didn't he just tap out to the sharpshooter? Because... He pretty much goes from the sharpshooter and then a minute later he's put him in the half Boston Crab and Angle's tapping out. Maybe, I mean, part of me thinks that the reason why they went with the half Boston Crab because it made it look like the Lion Tamer and they were building up towards the idea of Benoit and Jericho being a tag team. Yeah, that would be what comes out of all of this. But that is me just extrapolating for them. They didn't explain anything along those lines. The, the commentators didn't say, oh, he's doing that move because he's been working with Chris Jericho recently. It's like... You just have to guess at that sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, Benoit rolls out an ankle lock and puts on his own ankle lock and angle taps out, so it's free all towards the end. Uh, then I think the match gets picked up a little bit more because now they're just doing like doing like counter attempts and they're hitting a few more suplexes and stuff like that to actually make it a bit more of just like a real match. But um, I mean the bit the periods where like angle is rolling out of the ring to uh, stall for time, obviously because. And that means that it's been about five minutes running away from Benoit, which isn't very entertaining. And then Angle puts Benoit into a headlock type move for about five minutes as well. It, it just feels like they're just waiting for a mark to do something. Like we can't do anything else until we hit this time and then we start doing it again. And I will give you this. I am also not a fan of Iron Man matches. Mm. Brett and Sean are my favorite wrestlers, or at least... They're up there, and I hate their Iron Man match. I think this match suffers from a little bit of that. Well, we know it's 30 minutes long. 
we know we're dragging it out for 30 minutes. Whereas if you just put Benoit and Angle in a submission match and let those near tap-out moments really sink in, it becomes more engaging. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah, I'd say if, if this was just a regular submission match, it would have been far better and the crowd would have been far more into it. Yeah, uh, and I think that's what they should have gone with. Because they've never done an ultimate submission since. No, and I think this was a, a mistake. It's, it's still not a terrible match, but I just I just don't think it was particularly good, especially for these two level of quality. I can't wait till next month, because I know what we're talking about with them. Mm-hmm. Well, then we go into a sudden death overtime when the clock ends with free all. Uh, Angle has Benoit in the ankle lock, but Angle, uh, Angle, uh, Benoit doesn't tap out. And Angle just leaves thinking it's a draw, but he's pulled back for the overtime. And then Benoit eventually puts him into the crossface pretty soon, and Angle taps out, and Benoit wins. Which I thought was good. Babyface gets, you know, his win back from WrestleMania, and the feud continues. So then we have a uh, Triple H and Stephanie McMahon watching a video of The Undertaker and Kane in a hall discussing the match. I have to ask this question. What, how did they get video of The Undertaker and Kane doing that? Because what uh, we're watching is <laughs> them watching them doing it. So where are they seeing the footage of Undertaker and Kane doing Well, clearly, we could have been watching Kane and Undertaker, but we decided to cut to... The McMahon office. But it's good to know, because one of the biggest glaring issues with professional wrestling is backstage segments where they're plotting, and sometimes the announcers and everybody else in the promotion are made to appear stupid. Like, they can't see what everybody else literally just saw. Yeah, I, I mean, I get that, but it's just kind of like... They shouldn't be able to watch that sort of thing because that's the thing that we're seeing. And now, like, that was the thing that we were watching. Like, we were, we saw, like, a little, like, few-second clip of Undertaker and Kane discussing the match behind the scenes. And then it cuts to Triple H and Stephanie watching it on TV. But we're seeing them. We're not seeing them anymore. So surely they should be watching them, watching the TV screen. But I think the the easy thing to go with there, as far as logic, is... It's the McMahon office. The McMahon office has a TV. You can watch anything going on in the building. Yeah, I just think that they like they bugged the hallway or something like that. They just like they're watching them plan or whatever. Uh, but then we move on to uh, Show Man versus Big Show, Last Man Standing. I think it's quite it's funny because fun. they had a false count anywhere the previous year, which was essentially well, it was the same, but the roles were reversed. Shane McMahon was the heel and Big Show was the babyface, and. It wasn't a backlash. It was a Judgment Day, I think, last year, the previous year. But um, this was this was a good match. It was it was fun. Big Show plays like the dominant heel. Uh, Shane does the which way did he go type thing, hiding under the ring apron, attacking Big Show from behind, putting chloroform on the Big Show from behind, and then as soon as he's like got Big Show down under the chloroform, Vincent Man comes out, hits Shane with a steel chair to the head. Then he leaves, Big Show takes control, he toys with Shane, he could have him beat multiple times with choke slams and the final cut and stuff along that, those lines, but he keeps picking him up because he wants to inflict more damage. Uh, Tess comes out, Tess interferes on Shane's behalf, starts attacking the Big Show, because they, they've done a previous segment on SmackDown where Big Show had taken out Tess, so Tess wanted to get revenge and help out Shane. So he gets gets going, Big Show manages to fight him off as well because Tess is just a joke. <laughs> like he, he's, I, I think they think that he's a, meant to be a big babyface star off the back of this, but he just comes across as like just a jobber. Like he comes out, B 
Big Show's already been wrestling for like 10 minutes. He's also had chloroform applied to him, and Big Show still manages to overpower Test. Shane does a few bits and pieces as well. Big Show runs after him with a, a lead pipe. And then we get to the... Let, let's put it this way. This was just all prelude to this spot. Like, the yeah. spot. Well, uh, a Shane McMahon match, as fun as it is, is always just... It's a one-spot match. build-up to the one spot where Shane tries to kill himself. For what reason, nobody knows. Uh, so, I, well... What you think is, Shane McMahon just, like, has a death wish? No, I think he just is constantly trying to earn his father's approval and will kill himself <laughs> to do the process. That, uh, I mean, That's a better storyline than anything they could ever tell. I mean, we have to say, like, by the end of this match, like, we cut to a video segment where... Vincent Man says the Triple H is his only son. It's like, <laughs> like God, how art imitating life there. But uh, so uh, Test fights back against Big Show with a weapon, lays him across a surface. At this point in time, Shane Man has climbed all the way to the top of the backlash staging. He drops. It must be about thirty feet onto an elbow drop onto the Big Show. So I will say for this because we we go shit in terms of like the um the match Shane McMahon had with Miz at WrestleMania and also uh, something something to do with like Triple H uh, and The Undertaker where um, Triple H was chokeslammed off the um, staging at WrestleMania and it was quite clear to see that there was a crash mat underneath him. Yeah. Uh, they did a better job hiding the crash mat on this one. And I'll they did a that. better job hiding the crash mat. And I'd argue that's probably because they exposed it so well the previous pay-per-view with Hunter and Taker. Yeah, it was just kind of like watching that. I was like, I was looking for the crash mat, and I did see it. But like, you have to be, you have to be actively looking for it to see it. That one, rather than like it's been so clear in front of your face that you've they're, they're definitely landed on a crash mat. I think the idea of like them breaking like a really thin amount of wood going through it as well made it look a bit better as well. But that's just like it's another a typical shame at man death defying fool. And to be fair, this is. Shane wasn't as known for it at this point in time. Obviously, he'd done the huge fall against Steve Blackman at the previous SummerSlam. But that was when he was a heel when he'd just fallen off pretty much voluntarily on his own. This was him, like, ultimate babyface, willing to take whatever risks, dive down on the big show on his own. Yeah. And it would become, you know, the signature Shane McMahon spot we would see. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This was Shane falling off things. This is the future that he has to look forward to. But um, so Test helps Shane up. Uh, I thought it was a nice spot of him like draping him over a camera, like a camera crane, just make sure he held up and then shows counted out and then Shane wins. So like the match was just fine. It was all just built around one huge memorable spot. Yeah. And really Shane and Big Show... That's a good feud. They had good chemistry, and Shane, I think, is a better David to the Big Show's Goliath than Rey Mysterio, Floyd Mayweather, or anybody else that they've tried to put in that position. Uh, so we move on now to... Uh, so we spoke about like uh, Vince and Triple H and Stephanie behind the scenes, and then they cut to the world where Steve Blackman uh, gives some really bland and vague comments about the... Uh, the match that we just saw, and then Grandmaster Sexy interrupts him. Uh, it's just that that tag team still going, I guess. Uh, I don't think they ever stopped. Uh, well, they did eventually when Blackman was let go. But uh, uh, then we have uh, 
European Championship match. Matt Hardy, the new European champion, won it on the previous episode of SmackDown, as previously mentioned. Defends against Eddie Guerrero and Christian. Now, I have to ask this one. Why was Edge not in this match, and why is Christian in there instead? Because this is still at a point in their careers where they were interchangeable. I, w- I will say uh, Edge got a European Championship match the night after on Raw. Like a one-on-one match against Matt Hardy. Uh, but uh, but it just seems odd that Christian was the one chosen for this one. I love Christian. Yeah. But, like, Edge, Edge was clearly the star out of this one. Edge is better. I'm sorry. And I love Christian, too. But Edge is top five all-time for me. Mm. I mean, this was... Considering the talent involved, this is just, like... I mean, to be fair, they were given, like, six, seven minutes. And they tried to get everything they could done in that six seven minutes. Like they were all doing a um an all all three guys were down spot, like three minutes into the match. Like fucking hell, guys. Like what, like what are you like in like any other match and situation? Like you de- like exhausted after two minutes or whatever. Like, That's why I don't like multi man matches. Yeah, but this was just a very blah match, just like a filler between the previous big spot and the main event. Uh. Edge interferes, spears Matt Hardy on the floor. Uh, Jeff Hardy then evens the odds with Swan on to Christian. And then he takes out Edge, and then Matt hits a twist of fate on Christian and retains. Really nothing special. I can't really say anything too exciting about this match. Do you think Matt Hardy was given the European title to try to compensate? Like, hey, listen, we know we just established Jeff is a bigger star than you by having him beat Triple H? I think I don't think it was like Conte. I think it was a case of like, I think they were trying to push both Hardys as single guys as well as tag team guys at the same time. Because essentially the feud that, uh, well, the matches that Stone Cold and Triple H were having in the lead up to their main event match were almost exclusively against the Hardys. So they clearly saw the Hardys as like, these are like guys of the future. Let's give Jeff Hardy in a Cornell title run for a couple of days and let's give Matt Hardy the European Championship. I think they just and, saw a lot of potential in both of them. And this is about a year out from all four of them going their separate ways. So then we have uh, the actual main event, Stone Cold and Triple H against The Undertaker and Kane. Uh, so Stone Cold, WWF champion, Triple H in a Cornell champion, uh, Brothers of Destruction, uh, tag team champions, all titles online. So they showed like a video package showing like Austin Triple H forming their attacks on the Rock, uh, Triple H winning the IC title, beating up the Hardy, Austin attacking JR, uh, conveniently left off uh, beating uh, Lita with the steel chairs repeatedly, and also decided to leave off as well. Triple H losing the title briefly to Jeff Hardy. Yeah, I can't imagine why those don't fit into the story. Mm. So. Uh, I like the line early in the match where JR, I think it's actually during Austin's entrance, where Triple H says, uh, JR says that even though Triple H broke his arm, uh, Austin broke his heart. I thought that was just and a nice touch. JR tried hard as well to turn Austin heel. Mm. It, it didn't work. And because of it, spoiler alert for my thought on the rest of the year, it makes 2001 one of the worst years in retrospect because everything just comes off flat well yeah because austin should be the top baby face still be the top baby face and it's just doesn't like the only thing well the only reason why he's still the heel is because he wanted to be 
Yeah. It's a very... I, I, I guess Vince would have agreed with it as well, because otherwise he wouldn't have done it if Austin had said not. And even, even though Austin did wield a lot of power, I'm sure Vince would be able to convince him otherwise. But it just... I mean, Austin would say nowadays that if he goes back, he would have done things completely differently. Yeah, he would have just stunned McMahon and never would have been aligned with him. God, this is just a tag team match that is really boring in a lot of places. I mean, they start off so slowly. I know they're heels, but it's just like the worst type of heels where Austin and Triple H just walk around the ring for about five minutes not like, and then walk up the ramp saying they're not going to fight. I'm taking Kane come up after them. This is very, very, like, old school. Yes. Even, like, old school for 2001 a little bit. This is this is straight out of, like, the NWA in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, this is Austin and Hunter trying to be Ric Flair. I mean, Austin is so hammy in this entire match. Like, begging off the Undertaker, sliding on his knees, like, holding out a handshake. It's so... Annoying, it, because he's what, fucking Stone Cold Steve Austin. Well, it, it just reeks of desperation. Like, boo me. You need to boo me. Look at what I'm doing. You have to boo me right now. It's like, dude, just be a babyface. That's what everyone wants to do. They don't want to boo you. It's like, I guess it's like, he had always wanted to be, and, you know, same with Hunter. Both guys always wanted to be that working heel. Mm. So I guess this was them trying but, to be, you know... Trying to fill that role. So they have a the story. The story going into this is that Kane has an injured elbow, and Undertaker is reluctant to tag in Kane at any point in time due to the fact that he's got the injury. Uh, Undertaker manages to hit both Triple H and Austin with both of old school because, of course, Undertaker is the greatest of all time at this point. I mean, <laughs> well, somebody has to be. Well, he thinks that he's the greatest of all time at this point in time, and he wouldn't like he would be happy to remind everyone of that sort of thing. Uh, sets Austin up for the last ride. Triple H attacks him, and then they get the heat on Undertaker for a long time and then Kane tags himself in off the Undertaker because Undertaker is still refusing to tag him in uh, so Kane does it himself and then takes down everyone with one arm and then they do another heat segment this match is this match is longer it, well, I don't know if it is technically but it definitely feels a lot longer than the Benoit, Benoit angle match like, yeah just, just constantly like attacking the elbow of Kane, putting him in different stretch holds and stuff like that. It just felt like years. You know, I said earlier, I think I said sometime earlier this month, like in one of the WSW pay views, that it was the longest heat segment in history. And then I watched this and thought, wow, I really didn't give, uh, I really gave that one a poor going over. Was this that the just... Vito versus Reno match? No, that wasn't, a, it was a tag team match. I think it was, um, I think it was, uh, what was it? Uh, Palumbo and. O'Hare against Stasiak and uh, Jindrak, I think. Yeah, I think that was like a really long heat segment. I, I actually really right, liked it. Right, because they were all building towards tagging in O'Hare. And, and who O'Hare just won like... the match in like a minute. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, I really like the Reno beta match, would highly recommend it. So if you were going to watch, a, I can't remember what pay-per-view that was. I think it was the February one. Go watch whichever WCW show we reviewed in that one. Uh, Super Raw, I think, yeah. And then you had, uh, so then you have, this was one of the worst spots I think I've ever seen in a tag team match. And I'm not like exaggerating with that one. Triple H hits the pedigree on Kane. And then he immediately tags Stone Cold. Stone Cold then goes for the cover and Undertaker immediately just stops him with a boot. It's like, what? why was Triple H using the pedigree then? <laughs> it's like, you just used the pedigree, 
And then he doesn't even go for the cover. He tags in someone else to get the cover. And then the Undertaker just comes in anyway and breaks it up. It's like, what sort of... Who who was the agent that came up with that spot? I, I can't... I can't comprehend it. It was so unbelievably stupid. Well, because they were really trying, and now I'll grant you this, Triple H as a babyface in 02 didn't last long. Mm. But all of this still plays out a lot better with when Taker turns heel next year and Hunter's a babyface. Like, this was just a weird dynamic. Like, this did not work. Well, and I, I, I mean, the dynamic itself, I agree with you, it doesn't work, but there's th- just that one spot. I mean, let, let's put it into a more similar situation now. Let's say um, you had the um, Shields last chapter match recently. So imagine a spot where uh, like Drew McIntyre just hits Dean Ambrose with the Future Shock DDT, just in the middle of the ring. And then he tags in Bobby Lashley, who then tags in Baron Corbin, and Baron Corbin just goes into the cover and just Ron just stops him. It's like, like you just look at it and think, what, what was the point of doing all of that? Why didn't Triple H just cover him and Undertaker just stop it immediately? Why did Triple H because use his finisher like halfway through the match? Because they wanted... Uh, I guess Austin had to be the guy for the spot. I just wouldn't have put the pedigree in that moment because obviously that's your finish. Yeah, a DET, anything. Anything would would have made it a little bit more sense, sensible, but it just it just came across very convoluted. And then Undertaker chokeslams Austin and Triple H and Stephanie gets on the apron to distract El Hebner, but like she's only distracting him so the Undertaker can hit his move. <laughs> and as soon as like Un- uh, Hebner pushes her down, which gets obviously the biggest pop of the, the show because every time Stephanie gets hurt, <laughs> the crowd goes wild. Um, it's just a case of, like, Hebner immediately gets there to see Kane make the cover, and it's not like it was a second too late or anything like that. He's there the second Kane puts the cover in. Just like, this is just really... It was overly convoluted. And then... It's it's five people, six, if you count McMahon, trying to find their place in this weird... It's like, imagine a book series. Like, imagine a Harry Potter, and it's over. The final book of the series is finished. And then they're immediately like, yeah, but you got to put out another book. And that's what this feels like is WrestleMania 17 was the culmination of so much. And you have to book another show three weeks later. And it just like it, it burns slowly, especially with these characters who, you know, knew who they were and now have to find themselves in this new landscape, because unfortunately it's pro wrestling, no off season. You got to keep going. I mean, all I'll say is that I think this match would not have looked out of place as the main event of a WCW 2000 pay-per-view. Yep. In terms of just how overbooked it is. So Kane makes the tag, but Hebner was hurt. So didn't see the tag. So Undertaker runs wild. hits the last ride on Triple H, but Hebner says he's not the legal man when he makes the cover. Then Austin sends Taker into Hebner, so another ref bump hits a low blow. Fuck, like every single, like it's like they're teasing WCW. I'm saying we can put every single like fuck finish you ever wanted into one match, and we'll still get more money than they ever did. And then so Kane comes in, blocks attempted shot with a tag belt by Triple H. Uh, Stephanie runs in to try and stop it, gets hit with a big boot because of course she did. And then Vince sentences with a sledgehammer. Kane tries to stop him. Then Triple H uses the sledgehammer to attack Kane first in the arm and then in the head. 
and bravo Kevin Dunn for putting the camera away as soon as uh, Triple H does hit the uh, sledgehammer shot to the face. It's like as soon as like Triple H goes for the camera shot, or the um the sledgehammer shot, the camera immediately just pans to the outside of the ring. Yep. It's like like bravo then you like miss the finish completely. Then uh, Hebner rolls in, Austin rolls Hebner into the ring, makes the cover, and we've got new tag team champions. And so Triple H and Stone Cold have every single title belt, un- well, every single major title belt under their possession. Um, this is... Uh, so the only other triple header match in existence is the one between Sean Diesel and Bulldog and Yoko. And at least that match, first of all, the decision is overturned immediately. And that was at least building towards baby faces, you know? Well, I would I would also add that there's two other examples of it. There's the um, Pedro Morales and Bob Backlund winning the tag team titles when they were both. One of them was in the Cornell champion, one of them was WWF champion. Uh, that wasn't technically a double header because I don't think their their titles were on the line, but that's the case of the the two uh, singles champions holding the tag titles. And then you also have to look at the TNA uh, angle and Joe against uh, Team 3D with all titles on the line. Right, right. Which, that I thought was even better executed than this. Oh, this was poorly. This was a this was a very overbooked match. Like, I'd, I mean, the match itself, like, had enough star power to be good. And I will say the crowd did stay with it and were still into the entire thing. But I just think it was just really, really overbooked and, like, boring in very long stretches of it. But yeah. it's definitely the weakest main event. And again, personal opinion, I don't think they get any stronger. Especially uh, maybe the next month. I, th- I think Survivor Series 2001 will make us change that mind. That but one. like, even with that main event, for me, it it suffers in the fact that like Austin should be fighting for WCW, ECW, like the whole thing. If that would have led. To Ric Flair coming out and you're like, yeah, there's a WCW guy. And then, you know, Clobber's Austin. Might have been a little better. But, like, everything just, like I said, falls flat because they have no direction this year. Right, so um, just overall thoughts on this one. Obviously, I spoke about it at the start. It was a bit disappointing, I think, overall. I think it's the weakest WWE show we've seen so far. Definitely not the weakest show overall. And it, there was still some great stuff, I like the Raven Rhino match, I'd highly recommend watching. The Shame at Man spot is obviously hugely memorable and is replayed over and over again. Uh, I would say they should have cut down the Angle Benoit match and the main event by maybe five, ten minutes for both of them. Make the Angle Benoit match just a regular submission match for 20 minutes. And the main event should be down to like 20, 25 minutes at most. And then you could have added another match to the card somewhere to make it just a bit more exciting, like freshen things up. Like I don't really know what other major feuds were going on, but maybe you could have done something like I don't know, put the Jerry Lynn Crash Holly match on this show, and give it a bit more time. I think that would have made it a bit more fresh and would have kept the crowd's attention a bit more. Yeah, I would probably have put that match on because it is a title match, and I think that this show just needed to stretch out a little bit. Even like a China match, China versus Ivory or something. Like, yeah, ju- yeah, just anything to just fill out a little bit more time and take some time off the other ones, which felt a little bit too long for my for my money. But it's it's still it's not a bad show. I think we'll probably get worse shows in, as 2001 goes along. 
but as far as it as far as it went, it's probably just it's it's one that I'd skip and probably not go back and watch again. Yeah, I think that's fair. There's little moments like if you really want to see Shane McMahon's jump, watch The Last Man Standing. But nothing here really sticks out. Unless, like Callum had mentioned earlier, Sue Aitchison is the Duchess of Queensbury. If you want to see something fun like that, that is available for you. But overall, as we'll see, this two-man power trip isn't the greatest story. Uh, so, yeah, that's... um. That's the uh, end of the Backlash review and the end of this edition of 2001 Wrestling Odyssey. Uh, next month, we'll obviously go through the reheated tags for May and we'll also look at Insurrection. And we'll look at uh, yeah, Insurrection Day. and Judgment Day. And also, I, w- I will say we'll also add another caveat into one match, which will be the Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho versus, the Rock- versus Austin and Triple H from the episode of Raw following Judgment Day. A match because, that Dave Meltzer still refers to as the greatest match in Raw history. Uh, yeah, so we definitely need to... I think we definitely need to pay attention to that and watch it because just see if it holds up still. Because that is also the match where Triple H uh, tears his quadriceps. Oh, and yes. is out for until January. So th- that is the last time we will see Triple H in a ring in 2001. So That kind of sucks, yeah, yeah, I didn't think about that. That kind of as sucks. Much, that... As much as I rag on this era of Triple H, just it, it would have been a lot better with just him in the ring at any point in time. 2001 yeah. would have gone a lot better. But uh, yeah, so I think it's just time to uh, move on to some plugs. So obviously you can check out smokeoutmoment.com for a lot of like weekly articles, like wrestling events, predictions, all this other stuff. Obviously, check out the rest of the stuff on the uh, Smokerman YouTube channel uh, coming up next week. It's going to be something revolving around Money in the Bank. We don't know for certain, based around whether they actually reveal who the participants going to be. We either do a, a call the spot for Money in the Bank or we'll do a finance table on a previous Money in the Bank, which is also up in the air. But we'll definitely be doing something, so check that out. And obviously, you'll, next time you'll hear uh, people... After this will be in the uh, hot tag, so Rob and Tony will have that covered. The other stuff you can like give us give us some money on Patreon if you're feeling so kind. Just give us some money. Give us some damn money. <laughs> just just uh, if you're feeling very generous, then you could. And if you want us to help keep the lights on or help maybe just uh, fund some new content, if we're ever so bold and thinking some new ideas, then feel free to just leave a little little tip for us there. Uh, you could say like buy a t-shirt on a red bubble, something on those lines. Just just anything that gives us money is good for us. Uh, That's right. But, but you can also help out obviously by following us on the Mega Maniacs, following like Smoker Moment on all the social medias on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, follow everybody associated with us. Check out like so check out all the weekly stuff. Uh, am I missing anything important? Do you think, in terms of Smart Out Moment? In terms of Smart Out Moment, no, I would say gear up for a loaded May as mm. we have preview for Money in the Bank and a review of that, preview for Double Nothing, or Double or Nothing, sorry, and a, and a review of that, and then all the regular weekly podcasts and another edition of 2001 Wrestling Odyssey. So May will be a loaded month for those that like Smart Out Moment. I would also... 
give a shout out to Tony, who's not here with us in this journey, but you can check his stuff out at Fanboys Anonymous. That's all his geek culture stuff. There is a review, a spoiler-filled review of Marvel's Avengers Endgame. And just check out A Mango Tree and all the stuff he's got going on. As for myself, you can check out Dude Felice on Twitter and Instagram, Time Killer Apparel, the WrestleZone Daily and the WrestleZone Facebook page. Yeah, that's about it. Just click around and, yeah, that's what we'll be here. Okay, and just to round things off for me, you can follow me on Twitter at Wigmaster14. And then I have all the other uh, the weekly stuff. I'm doing the uh, power rankings this week, and which should already be up by the time this video comes out, so read that. And then Women's Wrestling, Week, Women's Wrestling Weekly, which may or may not be up by the time this video comes out, but do check out the website and read that when you have the opportunity. And that's it. So hopefully you've enjoyed this review of April on our journey back in time for 2001 Wrestling Odyssey. Uh, this has been another Smart Out moment, and we are being counted out.